Welcome to Literary Hangover. I'm Matt Leck. With me is Alex Guns. Hello. And today we are talking about the history of Colonel Nathaniel Bacon's rebellion in Virginia, done in Hudibrastic verse from an old manuscript. This is a poem by Ebenezer Cook, who uh, was the poet of The Sotweed Factor, which we covered last time on Literary Hangover. Alex, as a preliminary question, how great was your knowledge of Bacon's rebellion prior to taking on this poem? Uh, like very little. Like I think I drew more from college and high school than my own reading. I, I don't. I mean, before this podcast, I read like you know a smattering of like colonial history, so it would always come up. But yeah, it was always, at least in school, always talked about as this kind of precursor to the American Revolution. But not even in detail, just like this was some unrest that happened a century prior. Yeah, it's like, see, they hated the Brits even then, too, right? Yeah, like there or, was yeah. unrest. America was capable of unrest, but the nature of that, yeah, I was entirely in the dark. Yeah, along with all other, like, I mean, one of the reasons I was in the dark is this happened to do with relations between Native Americans and colonists, which... I mean, I feel like that was always kind of brushed over as quick as possible. I took AP U.S. history in high school. I got a C. Um, wow. <laughs> so I don't really know. Was it better that I took AP U.S. history and got a C, or should I have just taken normal U.S. history and got like a B? C plus, yeah. Yeah, C plus. <laughs> well, if it was a C plus, then definitely just take the AP U.S. history because it looks a lot yeah. better. yeah. But so another guy, uh, a little fellow named Wilcom E. Washburn, realized in the 50s, 1950s, that he didn't know much about uh, Bacon's Rebellion either, or what he did know was seeming to uh, brush up against the facts that he was checking about it. So I'm going to read a little bit from his preface to uh, his book called The Governor and the Rebel, uh, A History of Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia. And this was uh, copyright 1957 by the University of North Carolina Press. In the preface, he writes, I had not come to England to study Virginia history, let alone Bacon's Rebellion. I had come to study the legal and moral justifications for dispossessing the American Indians. My PhD dissertation uh, topic at Harvard University. So Harvard doing some good here, actually. Yeah, that's surprising. Uh, some, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> some lone tally marks in the good column. Uh, <laughs> Bacon's views on the legal right of the Indians to occupy the King's Virginia domain, or rather his belief that they had no such right puzzled me. Should a democratic champion of the oppressed, as we all supposed Bacon to be, limit his benevolence to whites only? Possibly. <laughs> this was 1957. <laughs> I like the idea of like uh, someone, you notice that when you read like older history books, like teeing up something that you're like, I know where you're going with this. Yes. And then they're like, no, actually, <laughs> it shouldn't be for everyone. And then he says this, Was not Andrew Jackson a friend of the little man as long as he was white and not red? Uh, I was not completely satisfied, however. Okay, good. Welcome. Nice. Um, there's that Harvard education for you. Yeah. <laughs> however, that justice should draw such a strict color line. Nor was I satisfied that existing accounts of Bacon's Rebellion accurately reflected the source material I was studying. I therefore became, began a detailed examination, footnote by footnote, of all references to the event in the works of the leading authority on the subject. I found that I could not agree with the interpretations this scholar had drawn from the documents. Yeah, there you go. So, and he he basically revises our understanding of Nathaniel Bacon as basically a anti-Indian genocidal maniac uh, who doesn't care very much at all for any kind of reform efforts. 
just to name one simple one that would have been easy a layup if he was a democratic a champion would be in 1670 the suffrage that had been granted since the 1640s for uh non-landholding freemen uh was revoked uh so bacon didn't really care about that he's mainly like let me kill all the indians yeah um, he is wanting to root out corruption i think was yeah. his big thing a little bit more here from washburn this is from chapter one uh, he says, the key that unlocks the meaning of Bacon's rebellion is to be found in the American Revolution. The spirit of 1776 lent an appearance of legitimacy and respectability to all revolts against British authority. Bacon's rebellion, seen as a democratic movement, was one of its results. Within a few years of the revolution, the democratic interpretation of the earlier rebellion, <clears throat> the democratic interpretation of the earlier rebellion became orthodox. When the justice of the colonial relationship with the mother country was accepted, however, Bacon's rebellion was excluded from historical respectability. So basically, and uh, Ebenezer Cook, as we said, this is from 17, uh, a 1728 printing of this uh, Bacon's Rebellion poem called The Maryland Muse uh, by Ebenezer Cook, which included this Bacon Rebellion poem and a later version of The Sotweed Factor, which excluded the satire on uh, Quakers. Uh, <laughs> it softened that. We highlighted that one in the podcast. I thought that was quite good, actually. It was good. It was very interesting. And he, yeah, he takes it out. And then he also um, doesn't curse the uh, colonial uh, residents as much as uh, he does in the first edition. But uh, So the first edition of the Sotweed that we read is better. But the Maryland Muse came out with Sotweed Factor and this Bacon's Rebellion poem. 1728, one of the earliest local poems printed south of Philadelphia. It, it looks like, and I, I'm trying to look more into this, but that there was a set, there was a literary set that Ebenezer Cook was sort of a part of. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, there's some other poets that reference him, reference him doing sort of other jobs besides poetry. <laughs> um, this uh, Maryland Muse was from the press of William Parks uh, in Annapolis and Williamsburg. Uh, he was a printer, and so yeah. This is uh, definitely in the era, and Ebenezer Cook himself was, you know, close or or uh, reliant on the aristocracy of the Chesapeake area. Uh, so he was going to be anti-Bacon uh, at this point because you know the, the rebellion. Uh, spoiler alert: fails. Uh, kind of fails though. in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There's, it, it fails in the way that like the South lost the Civil War, but then won the peace. Right. Exactly precisely you know one of the things that solidifies and this episode is going to be more about the actual uh, rebellion itself and some of the things that lead up to it the ramifications will be in the next episode uh on the widow ranter by afro ben uh and we'll get into more of the things where you know this is where the color line actually becomes really enforced mm -hmm. uh um white colonists give are given a much many more rights and they democratize slaveholding. Uh, that becomes less of a House of Burgesses elite thing. Uh, and also dispossession of Native Americans and enforcing gender norms. There's a lot of ramifications from Bacon's Rebellion. Uh, but that's for the next episode. One of the trends, though, that I do want to cover for this episode is the rise of Indian hatred. I think the thing about Bacon's Rebellion that can't be stressed enough is how much Nathaniel Bacon was a sort of Hitlerian style, like, kill them all type of fellow. Yeah. He's someone that, I mean, the invocation of Andrew Jackson is correct. 
and that's a it, they almost cancel each other out in like uh like in uh raw raw american kind of way where it's like whoa like oh like nathaniel bacon is bad but have you seen andrew jackson it's like you can't make that next step until like they're both like genocidal maniacs and that yes one of them is on the 20 and that's something that like we need to find a way to reckon with in some way i mean the thing that's so interesting on a surface level of bacon's rebellion is you have uh is bacon is able to muster up uh the basically the proletariat uh indentured servants and slaves Mm -hmm. uh into multiracial armies that fight the establishment so that's kind of exciting yeah, and you see it, and we're going to get into in a second the economic anxiety that led to that mm-hmm. being, um, you know, reapable. But the problem is, it doesn't lead to any sort of like egalitarian leveling, actually. And in fact, it, basically, the rallying cry it isn't like let's go into the homes of the rich people around here. Yeah. Uh, it's let's murder the Native Americans so we can take their land. Yeah, like there are solutions granted to them. Just has nothing to do with their economic station, which is causing the the strife. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this thing about what makes you wealthy, and in England it is land. So all these mm-hmm. new um, uh, people who, especially, have been uh, sent to America to be laborers, or that's the best option that they were given. Uh, they have better, op- they had worse options to stay in England, but they see land as you know the key to be being made. Yeah, but we find out uh, and find out here that actually being able to control the labor of others in mass <laughs> yeah. is real wealth. So Bernie Sanders' two point five million dollars for books is not quite Michael Bloomberg's hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah, um, but so this is from James D. Rice's Tales from a Revolution, a uh, really good book, uh, narrative uh, sort of history of the uh, Bacon's Rebellion, available on Audible here. In recent years, however, the aging Barclay had found it harder to govern Virginia, and not only because he had grown hard of hearing and crabby from various physical ailments. Much of the trouble lay with Virginia's dominant crop, tobacco. Virginia's society, settlement patterns, and even Indian relations were built around the demands of growing tobacco. Tobacco encouraged dispersed settlement on scattered plantations. The growing population had spread into areas less convenient to Jamestown and beyond the governor's oversight. Younger, less established men had difficulty acquiring good land that was not exposed to Indian attacks on the frontier. In such places, it was also harder to get one's tobacco to market. Moreover, overproduction drove down tobacco prices in many years, which great planters could ride out but put small to middling planters in a difficult position. The key to economic independence was controlling labor, which was harder to come by than land. Growing tobacco was extremely hard work. Few people really wanted to work barefoot in Virginia's heat and humidity. Hoeing, pruning back plants, and picking tobacco worms off the precious leaves, so planters relied on unfree laborers. Most planters had come to prefer slaves by the 1650s, but enslaved Africans were hard to come by and thus were owned primarily by elites. Ninety percent of Virginia's officeholders owned slaves, but only seven percent of non-elite planters owned any. As had been the case since the founding of Jamestown in 1607, most newcomers to Virginia in the 1670s were still young Englishmen, and a very few women, with few other options in life. 
Most had agreed to serve as indentured servants for four to seven years. In exchange for their passage to America, indentured servants gave up their freedom to their masters. As long as they were servants, they did the same work as slaves and lived under similar conditions. Though unlike slaves, they could look forward to their eventual freedom. If they lived, that is. The death rate, mostly from disease, was lower in 1675 than it had been in the early 17th century, but it was still startlingly high compared to rates in England and in colonies farther north. Even servants who had survived to the end of their servitude were often chronically ill, for malaria, which weakened those it did not kill, was endemic in Virginia. Even a servant who lived to the end of his term still might not be able to establish himself as a small farmer. Economic opportunities for ex-servants had been shrinking over the past generation. Many entered freedom already worn out from their years of servitude, reduced to working as tenant farmers or taking up small farms on remote, often dangerous frontiers. We've already talked about uh, the sort of false promises of sort of um, the promotional literature that people see in England trying to entice them to come to America. Yeah, something that Ebenezer Cook covers quite extensively in his Sotweed Factor poem. Yeah, and he he loves that sort of stuff, and all his, that's his favorite thing to sort of write about. He talks quite a lot about laboring in this, too, at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, his Sotweed Recidivus... Uh, talks about like how we need to not over over plant tobacco <laughs> like yeah yeah it's all about trying to like you know control the economy i guess the thing about indentured servants starting to outlive their indentures indentures yeah uh and therefore wanting you know their land uh, that they were promised is a very it's very dark that you know for the first uh you know couple decades of the colony the the actuarial tables worked out in that people were dying at a fast enough clip to where you didn't need to be expanding settlement and taking over Indian lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after a certain amount of conquest and disease of Native Americans and colonization, all of a sudden, like, those numbers start changing. And it reminds me about how, like, I mean, indentured servant... Uh, we'll get into this later, but... Um, yes. I think it should be tabled uh, at the beginning also that... The Virginia settlement, uh, which was also from largely from English populations like the Massachusetts colony, the difference is that for until I think was it 16, 1624, the crown formally takes over uh, the Virginia colony. Up until that point, it's a private stock company that right. needs to turn a profit like immediately. So the difference between like, let's say Massachusetts, which is like, let's try this kind of utopian community you know where everyone is uh a puritan or whatever they have the room to do that because they have a charter from like an organized group of churches over in europe whereas virginia is like all right we're here we need to start making money yeah find the gold yeah basically yeah uh and so that's why it's so quickly there's all these farmers but it soon turns into only one type of farm which is the tobacco crop right yeah yeah um i want to mention this um they're talking about uh uh, this is from a, a book called The Divided Dominion, Social Conflict, and Indian Hatred in Early Virginia by Ethan A. Schmidt. Very good book. The uh, author was an assistant professor at hist- of history at Delta State University, was shot I- on campus uh, in his office by uh, sh- you know double murders, uh, suicide sort of thing by another professor that he actually thanked in an earlier edition. That is book. wild. 
very depressing, depressing stuff going on because uh, this is a great book, um, uh, and it's a shame that Ethan A. Schmidt will not be around to uh, give us another one. But uh, there's a section here that talks about uh, you know how people thought about Virginia as like an outlet for uh, you know a Cromwellian outlet for excess populations that aren't mm-hmm. don't know how to behave themselves in England. Uh, Schmidt writes, uh, in responding to the growing chorus of bad news from the colony and accusations of mismanagement by the company's leaders, uh, William Crashaw employed some rather specious logic. Uh, Specifically, he argued that since many who were destitute in England had left for Virginia and had not returned in large numbers, that must be evidence that Virginia had greater capacity to supply their needs than England had. Therefore, those who left England in search of more opportunities must be finding them in the colony. And then later they did the math and just like eight, like uh, if 15,000 went, like mm-hmm. 8,000 died. Oh my gosh. Uh, so it was just a death trap for excess, yeah. you know, people who got locked up and, you know, go, go plant some tobacco and uh, die in four years, please. Anyway, we'll go back to the bit from uh, James D. Rice's Tales from the Revolution. Economic opportunities for ex-servants had been shrinking over the past generation. Many entered freedom already worn out from their years of servitude, reduced to working as tenant farmers or taking up small farms on remote, often dangerous frontiers. Fewer and fewer managed to acquire land and laborers of their own. In recent years, the proportion of non-elite planters who owned any servants or slaves had abruptly dropped 20% from pre-1670 levels. Under these circumstances, it was difficult to attract a wife from the small pool of unmarried women. Unable to establish themselves as married householders or to protect their families if they did manage to find a wife in a frontier area where the gender ratio was still heavily skewed, many freedmen were deeply frustrated at their inability to perform their roles as men. Their festering anger needed an outlet. To make matters worse, Virginians faced a combination of low tobacco prices and rising taxes. The colony had already raised taxes to pay for an expensive lobbying campaign to rescind grants of millions of acres of land to northern Virginia that Charles II had made to private individuals. Additional taxes to pay the legislators, the Burgesses, generous expense allowances during frequent assemblies were bitterly resented. Moreover, the colony was still paying for the Anglo-Dutch War of 1672 to 1674, when the Crown had forced Virginia to build a useless and expensive fort at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. The fort had not prevented a Dutch fleet from entering the Chesapeake Bay in 1673 and sinking or capturing several ships. (laughs) And not only were the taxes high, the way taxes were collected— payable only in tobacco, was also burdensome. Awesome. (laughs) A growing chorus of complaints blamed the commissioner of Virginia's county governments for levying such heavy taxes, which unfairly burdened small planters who grew little tobacco or had little to spare. Barclay recognized that the colony's struggling planters, not to mention servants and slaves, posed as much of a threat to the colony as the Dutch did. As early as 1667, he had warned Charles II to consider us as a people pressed at our backs with the Indians, in our bowels with our servants, and invaded from without by the Dutch. How miserable that man that governs a people, he had complained, where six parts of seven at least are poor, indebted, discontented, and armed. 
Many of the armed men who turned out to fight the Dutch in 1673 were so poor and disaffected that they might switch sides if the Dutch gained the upper hand, in hopes of bettering their condition by sharing the plunder of the country with the invaders. Now, that's the economic anxiety quote uh, as here as you could get, right? How miserable that man that governs a people where six parts and seven are uh, at least are poor, indebted, discontented, and armed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is another thing. um, uh, The Bacon's Rebellion episode and what I'm learning about it makes me believe that um, the Second Amendment was put there specifically so that you know, anybody can have a gun and kill an Indian with it, basically. Like, I, this is where, like, militias come from that don't need, you know, the king or whoever, the governor, to tell them that they can go protect themselves. I don't know. What do you feel about that? Yeah, I think there's... A, this is a great... I mean, Jefferson is right in the sense that this is, like, you know, a state, like, what do they call, like, a dress rehearsal or whatever for the revolution but it is a dress rehearsal or early staging of a way to solve a problem in the american continent which is if there's kind of like unrest specifically economic unrest the pressure release valve is going to be ample land right across the from wherever you are and so this idea of having kind of an armed group of poor laborers that if they ever feel the need to finally take it out on someone they can just expand westward one of the things that's thrown at Berkeley in Berkeley's face is that he's trading guns with the natives too. Yeah. When we talk about like colonizers and we talk about like access to firearms, we're talking about why it's become a, like, you know, a hotbed issue that can no longer, that, that is like turning inward on itself is that the frontier, both the literal frontier and the metaphorical frontier has evaporated in our generation right. and can't come back. And now these things are turning like inwards and it just seems chaotic in a way that it was chaotic before, but not for people that we were asking their opinion about. <laughs> right, exactly. I want to go back to uh, Ethan A. Schmidt's uh, Divided Dominion um, for a little bit more on this, specifically the Indian hatred side of things. What's interesting about Divided Dominion is it starts um, with an earlier 1674 uh, failed rebellion by a guy named Roger Delkey who was resisting a tax levy. And uh, Schmidt argues that um, though Delkey wanted to try to foment a rebellion based on these ec- economic issues, um, the reason he was a- was unable to succeed where uh, Bacon was able to was that uh, Bacon w- simplified his demand for let me kill the Indians. Yeah. Um, uh, 17th century Virginia during the 30 years preceding Bacon's rebellion according to historian Edmund Morgan, was a golden fleecing. Uh, the attempts at aggrandizement by Virginia's social and economic elite grew brazen. In the words of historian Anthony Parent, during this period, an elite evolved, consolidated its power, and fixed itself as an extensive land and slaveholding class. Uh, by the 1670s, elite Virginians' self-serving manipulation of the colony's legal, political, and judicial structures had combined with other issues beyond their control to create a situation in which middling planters, westerners, and others outside the small circle of power that surrounded Virginia Governor William Barclay broke away from the force exerted on them by Virginia's elite. When this occurred, the balance of the field force tilted in favor of non-elites, and they exploited the opportunities this presented to unleash violence against all Indians in Virginia as a way of gaining the land they felt was both their birthright and their best hope for checking the growing power of the elite count- of their elite counterparts. 
Specifically, the issue of carte blanche permission for all-out war on all Indians in Virginia divided the colony's planter class to the point that many of them joined the landless freedmen, former indentured servants, middling and small landholders, and others outside the small circle of men who controlled Virginia's government to plunge the Old Dominion into months of violent chaos. Uh, this book asserts that Bacon's rebellion resulted from myriad internal and external factors, building in Virginia since its earliest days that drove Virginians to increasingly interpret their disputes with one another along class lines. Disputes over access to political power, taxation, land, and defense policies that seemed to favor the well-connected at the expense of those outside the inner circle of power, failed attempts to diversify the colony's economy, uh, restriction on access to the lucrative Indian trade, the reverberations of wars between Indian groups outside Virginia, English conflicts with the Dutch during the 1660s, the effects of the transition from indentured servitude to slavery, the ups and downs of the tobacco economy, and the tension resulting from increased crown intervention in the governance of the colony all played a significant role driving Virginia to the uh, 1676 upheaval. Uh, in the end, though only a call for the annihilation of all Indians in Virginia could unite the different factions uh, arising from these issues and mold them into a widespread social rebellion. And uh, he argues that the Powhatan Wars specifically set the table for this. Speci uh, it says, uh, The violent confrontation between colonists and the Powhatan chieftain during the first 35 years of the colony, while necessary for the consolidation of elite power, also inculcated in the minds of many Virginians a belief that unrestrained violence against Indians by any member of white Virginia society for land acquisition purposes represented the normative state of Virginia-Indian relations. When the end of the Cromwellian Protectorate in 1660 returned Sir William Barclay to the governorship of Virginia, he used the opportunity to embark on, upon what one historian has termed the boldest state-building project the colony had yet seen. Uh, the key components of this program were a lucrative trading relationship based on peaceful coexistence with Indians, both in Virginia and beyond its borders, securing the loyalty of property-owning Virginians, checking the potential for disorder among the colony's landless servant and enslaved populations, and diversifying Virginia's economy. For various reasons, uh, many of which were beyond his control, Berkeley's state-building programs ultimately failed. The repercussions of that failure, including the imposition of higher taxes, the abridgment of political rights, and the attempts to protect the Indian trade by upholding the rights of Indians at the same level of those of whites led to Bacon's Rebellion. Uh, while Virginians held grievances against Virginia government before this time, it took Berkeley's reluctance to allow the indiscriminate killing of Indians by frontier whites to finally bring about their rebellion. All right. So I think we've probably prefaced it enough. Is there anything else you want to say, Alex, before we embark? Yeah. Well, one thing that's like worth mentioning is um, the the headright system, which we kind of kind of touched on a little bit, but just to like lay it out that in 1618, the headright system was established in the Virginia colony as a way of saying, as a way of kickstarting uh, like, like uh, business ventures. And the idea is if you could pay your own way across the Atlantic, uh, you got 50 acres free, which seems like, you know, makes enough sense on its own. But the, the further stipulation is, or if you pay for someone else's, so now all of a sudden, if you're some rich merchant and you can pay for multiple people's uh, way across the Atlantic, they become your indentured servants and you get 50 acres for each one. So all of a sudden you have these like well, like well to do upper what would be now upper middle class planters in Virginia just just pouring money into uh, bringing people over here, many of whom are just going to die. Not that it matters to you because you just get 50 acres every time. Yeah. So basically you're just buying land and then getting free laborers out of it for seven years. That's a, that's a hell of a good deal. And it's, 
like the significance of that exploitation uh, in the in raw terms of wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Created this Virginia aristocracy, which would basically form all these guys, like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, who's, yeah. whose ancestor will come up early on in this poem. Yeah, um, all of these. This aristocracy was formed because of this exact exploitation here. Yeah, um, this exact system where. Uh, did slaves come up for the heteroid system? Do you know off? No, they no. did not. Okay, interesting. This is, yeah, so then this this catalyst moment moves more towards slavery than indentured servitude. Right. Um, but just and then to like put it like a number, like keep to keep the the numbers in mind. Uh, by 1670, so right before this rebellion, half the population of the Virginia colony was indentured servants. So this, that mean the setup had gotten completely out of control. Now, like you have right. half the population that's like being worked to death like something like this is yeah. going to happen and what happens is let's take the vote away from those people yeah <laughs> yeah yeah let's piss them off yeah let's get tom perez in here <laughs> yeah. all right so um once again i uh, i read this poem there's some errors in this it's a long like like i said the i didn't know until later that it's berkeley is pronounced barkley uh sorry yeah. about that it's a good reading though appreciate it before we get to the poem, there's some uh, pretext that I w- that is not included that is actually pretty important for how this conflict takes off, and it's another basically a jurisdiction dispute mm-hmm. and a trade dispute um, uh, where so Bacon only came to Virginia in August of 1674. In July of 1675, uh, Doag Indians that's D O E G Doag. Indians attacked Thomas Matthews' plantation, uh, and a plantation overseer named Han is killed. Now, th- th- this wasn't an unprovoked attack, although a lot of the early histories of Bacon's Rebellion like to portray it as such. Yeah. Uh, what actually happened is Matthews fucked over the Doegs on some trades, and they tried, some weeks early prior to this, tried to come steal some pigs uh, of his and uh, take them back in a canoe. Uh, they were spotted by some uh, colonists in a sailboat and uh, chased. I think one was killed and then the rest were beaten up. And then they, you know, retaliated, right? And this is the thing where it's like they're obviously not going to get a fair shake in Virginia or Maryland law courts. Uh, so they, you know, you retaliate. Uh, it's kind of like how Iran sent a missile at an Air Force base and gave brain damage to a lot of... Uh, American soldiers, yeah. because Donald Trump needed to uh, do an illegal assassination, a war crime. But anyway, I digress. Um, you you want a, a proportional response to save face, basically, right? Yeah. So in response to this attack, uh, Colonel George Mason and Captain George Brent lead some men to go kill the Doegs, and they start massacring them, and then one of them runs past them and says, uh, Susquehanna Natos. Now that means Susquehanna Friends. As in, we're not, I don't know why you're killing us, we're Susquehannas. Yeah. And Mason, who, I mean, he was totally down to kill Indians, but it's like, oh, crap, we really fucked this up. Uh, everybody stop, uh, says, shoot no more, these are our friends, which is, you know. Like, I feel like the Team America World Police. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Just rolling like in. Play, like, yeah. just rolling in, like, oh, whoops, these are the wrong right. guys. Sorry, these are our teammates. Um. And so, yeah, the uh, the Susquehannas now have to <laughs> retaliate, right? Yeah. Uh, so, because they've just been massacred. That's where you hear a Susquehanna Fort. That comes up uh, at the beginning. So, that basically brings us right to the beginning of this 
uh, poem here. I just wanted to preface that because that little bit about killing the wrong Indians. Yeah. Uh, until they can tell us, no, we're actually friends with you guys. What's going on here? And that's wh- that is what starts Bacon's Rebellion. So yeah. good job, well, everyone. Yeah, the pressure point, I feel like, is in is in people who think that there are different Native American tribes and those who don't care yeah. <laughs> that are like, like, well, who gives a shit if they're our friends or not? Like, they're Native Americans. Well, or they're, he would say they're Indians. But, like, that's, like, Bacon's essential argument. Yes, and this is not just psychoanalyzing racists. This was a matter of policy. Yeah, yeah. In that Bacon literally at one point goes to Barclay. He's like, okay, I'll distinguish between friend Indians and enemy Indians as long as you sign me a commission. But if you don't sign me a commission, I'm just going to go kill them all. That's yeah. that's the bargaining chip. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'll discriminate friends from not friends. Um, anyway, so here is my reading of Ebenezer Cook's Bacon's Rebellion poem. The History of Colonel Nathaniel Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia. Canto 1. This canto gives you a narration of Colonel Bacon's provocation and shows in what rebellious manner he ventured to display his banner. I sing those dire Baconian wars, which, like the Oliverian jars, long since broke out in smoke and fire, twixt testy knight and waspish squire, the first of which, as authors tell, governed Virginia very well, till little Nat, presumptuous Hector, aspiring like the lord protector or the atlantic came and put the people in a flame set folks together by the ears who lived in friendship many years and in a snare drew headstrong rabble who too much listened to his babble so there's two oliver cromwell references right off the top of in the first stanza bacon himself and we'll get more about his backstory later but he had an uncle who worked in uh, who was in Cromwell's government. Yeah, actually. So, um, and it, it occurs to me that maybe Cromwell was sort of the uh, 17th century's version of Napoleon, or like the, he was the great man of politics, basically. Yeah. Well, he and, had a professional army, which was unique. Mm, right. Interesting. He's a military man, and I think that it's Very interesting also looking at like the Boston, or sorry, um, the Massachusetts colony reaction, which is like largely supportive even after he loses. Whereas Virginia is much more clear that, uh, fuck that guy. Yeah, so Berkeley goes into retirement while Cromwell uh, comes into power. But Mm -hmm. yeah, like, uh, also, bad time to be a Native American in America when Cromwell takes over. Because the the monarchy was way more willing to restrain colonists than (laughs) Cromwell was. Um, Not to surprise from knowing what we've learned about that sort of... um, I mean... Uh, and Bradstreet talking about, you know, let's go fucking kill yeah, him. Yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Puritans' whole response is like, can't wait to start the world over, but first let's wipe out everyone. Yeah. But ere the plot grew ripe for action that was begun by Bacon's faction, fame led the van with hot alarms of aborigines in arms, who far and near did then resort in haste to Susquehanna Fort. Full bent on thoughts of massacre, inspired by their accursed O'Kee, combining in their hellish anger to cut off every Marylander, thus devils in the shape of men secured themselves in moated den, which oft the planters tried to take, but still in vain attempts did make. The Indians making such resistance caused English foe to seek assistance, who thought it fit without delay 
to sound their neighbors down the bay and try how Governor Berkeley stood affected to the common good, praying Virginia to stand in time of need by Maryland, who, out of Christian compassion to neighboring friends of his own nation, sent Washington with veteran forces, armed at all points with leaden doses. Now, this is, in fact, a little guy by the name of John Washington... He is a planter, a soldier, and politician. He's the great-grandfather of the George Washington, born in Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire England, uh, settled Westmoreland County, Virginia. Uh, his father, Lawrence, was a reverend in Oxford, Don. Oh, yeah, yeah his father was uh, stripped from his clerical position for being a royalist, in, uh, which is interesting, given uh, yeah. um, George's later... Uh, activities uh in 1656 jo uh, john which would this would make him 25 invests in a tobacco merchant ship uh and that ship two years later founders in the potomac uh and then john remains in the colonies um where he marries uh colonel nathaniel pope's daughter anne uh and gets uh in his dowry to 700 acres so that's uh, that's John Washington's uh, start here. I want to go back to Tales from a Revolution for a little bit more for a quick intro of John Washington. Washington and his new neighbors were confident that the Indians would soon disappear altogether, and they stood to benefit from an Indian war that would hasten this departure. Some, including Washington, had even obtained land grants that were conditional on the Indians deserting the land. Nevertheless, Barclay knew that he had no choice but to rely on local leaders to defend against further Susquehannock and Doag raids. Virginia's form of government gave a great deal of power to the individual counties, extending even to some limited control over war and diplomacy. Besides, the Potomac River was several days' hard travel from the capital at Jamestown. Rather than entrust the task of diffusing the situation to the notoriously anti-Indian militia officers Mason and Brent, Barclay turned to the newcomer, Washington, and to Isaac Allerton, Jr., a prominent planter who had a history of getting along well with his Indian neighbors. Barclay gave Allerton and Washington command of the county militias from northern Virginia, instructing them to investigate the true causes of the troubles and to punish the killers. Washington and Allerton, however, had no intention of investigating the causes of the conflict. The day after receiving their commission from Barclay, they wrote Calvert to request that Maryland provide 250 horsemen for an expeditious march against the barbarous enemy and to assist the Virginia forces now preparing to pursue their enemies, the Susquehanna Indians. Governor Calvert read the Virginians' letters to his council, which in both Maryland and Virginia served not only as a governor's cabinet, but also as the upper house of the legislature and as the colony's highest court. The council immediately agreed to the proposal. The Virginia and Maryland militias converged on the Susquehannock's fort 12 days later, on September 26th. The Marylanders arrived first, crossing a steep ravine near the fort, breaking down a short slope, and as the morning sun slanted in from their left, advancing the last quarter mile over a low rise to the south of the Susquehannock stronghold. Okay, so they were they're surrounding the Susquehannocks now because they've been t they take retribution for being murdered for no reason yeah uh by them and so now they're going to lay siege to this uh uh the Susquehannock fort 
Christian compassion to neighboring friends of his own nation sent Washington with veteran forces armed at all points with leaden doses and double rounds of cannon powder to make their pop guns sound the louder for Maryland to aid poor brethren that were attacked by barbarous heathen with whom a sharp dispute began wherein was killed both horse and man some prisoners were some cripples made by indian scouts in ambuscade who ne'er in vain at friend or foe a trigger draw or bend their bow as able archers and as good as little john and robin hood others were left on foot to trudge it with carbine slung like tinker's budget that to the combat did advance sir mounted on skeletonian prancer whose downcast looks seemed to foretell their certain fate in battle fell whilst many were to slaughter led by savages on horse-flesh fed which from the english camp in fight they carried off or stole by night to satisfy the greedy maws of such as scarce could stir their jaws but lay as if they had been dead stretched out on honour's truckle bed almost with hunger famished thus the beleaguered in their hide so yeah the siege is is starving the natives but they're uh, able to defend themselves very strongly um and then this happens john washington covers himself in glory stretched out on honor's truckle bed almost with hunger famished thus the beleaguered in their hive by carrion were preserved alive till glutted with such trojan diet and willing to depart in quiet six captains famous in report to sue for peace rush from the fort whom the besiegers with small pains to pluto sent without their brains which treacherous act by all relations against the law of arms and nations provoked the infidels with ire and indignation to retire so so some peace emissaries come out and they're murdered um great hans i've just noticed something the story behind that is this um, impatient with the susquehannock's insistence that the iroquois had committed the killings some among the virginians bluntly singled out three of the susquehannock men as murderers this struck the susquehannocks as a good time to return to their fort the following morning susquehannock emissaries left the fort under a white flag of truce hoping somehow to talk their way out of the siege again they displayed the peace medal and old paper washington allerton and truman however ordered the great men seized and bound and took them to the graves of the susquehannocks who had recently been killed by the english truman told the captives that they deserved the like washington chimed in asking what should we keep them any longer let us knock them on the head and we shall get the fort today the susquehannocks were carried forth from the place where they were bound and brutally clubbed to death. The English, however, did not get the fort that day, nor the next day, nor the day after. Both sides settled into a long siege. Wow. So, yeah, there's John Washington's military, uh, a military decision made by John Washington. Let's just murder these peace emissaries and we'll get the fort by the end of the day. And yep. no, it doesn't work out like that. Instead, we just murder them. So, yeah. What if uh, our actions just didn't have consequences? Yeah, I mean, it's a good thing we learned that they did. We learned <laughs> that they definitely do have consequences. They lest their cell, resemblance of a future hell, and to their subterfuges went, on bloody vengeance fully bent, leaving the English struck with wonder, their empty citadel to plunder, who pelted at the demon's nest with courage not to be expressed, 
whilst the delinquents in their flight in morpheus's arms slew ten outright of the besiegers whom they found extended on the mossy ground and to complete their serious anger with tomahawk instead of hanger they made the number up threescore leaving them weltering in their gore should be furious anger the problem is they use the same f character for s and f mm-hmm. and there's some typos that are hard to do <clears throat> uh correct live on a first pass and to complete their serious anger with tomahawk instead of hanger they made the number up threescore leaving them weltering in their gore whose harmless lives like a bloody hounds they had let out by mortal wounds then to extenuate the act which willful murder was in fact they to virginia's chief complain their heroes by the english slain were messengers of peace sent out to put a period to the rout so should have been to counsel led and not like dogs knocked on the head by sentinels to them inferior although in number much superior wherefore they ask for satisfaction for damages sustained in action and further they desired to know why berkeley was so much their foe as to assist the marylanders with valiant soldiers and commanders which brought their indian warlike nation to poverty and tribulation telling how pops and squaws lay dead like rotten sheep for want of bread that in revenge they thought it fit that ten for one should pay for it that if he would the peace renew he must compassion to them show recall forthwith his sons of thunder who proved their courage to a wonder by making savages knock under or else resolved they were each man to fight it out kill as kill can this free remonstrance of their case rebellion carried in its face and was rejected with derision by persons of the best condition whose interest leaned the other way such as for honor or for pay made sword and pistol their vocation and held it an abomination and base dishonor to their station on any terms to accept a peace from infidels that like wild geese beyond the western mountains roam and rarely can be found at home this rates the transient native americans don't deserve to tell us where we can and can't put our homes basically yeah i mean they're heathens so from infidels that like wild geese beyond the western mountains roam and rarely can be found at home this raised the indians mortal rage which not but death of foes could swage who to their aid to share the spoil and bear a bob in martial toil the neighboring savages soon call and draw to battle great and small that to the english tribute paid on whom they fresh incursions made and oft did use their scalping trade great was the slaughter great the cries throughout the english colonies of murder rapines conflagrations committed by outrageous nations like ancient picks of monstrous size and aspect frightful to the eyes though false and cowards in their natures yet terrible and fierce as satyrs as many found it to their cost who dearest friends and substance lost with plenteous crops and herds of flocks being forced to fly the woods and rocks wandering like pilgrims lord knows whither exposed to wind and stormy weather this raging calenture to shun whereby the heathen be undone the susquehannocks are really taking revenge for this attack um and it's upsetting people like crazy and there's a lot of talk in the uh, histories about you know sort of fake news and 
atrocity stories. It's kind of reminiscent of the Spanish Civil War and inflation of death tolls and that sort of thing, um, which seems to be also timeless. Lord knows whither, exposed to wind and stormy weather, this raging calenture to shun, whereby the heathen be undone. Thus was Virginia's prosperous state disturbed at first by adverse fate, with Indian wars and various rumors, which ended with intestine tumors, that minds to dire rebellion bent, raised to disturb the government, beyond will's power to prevent for fortune that is ever fickle, and always has some rods in pickle, to plague the governor much more than she had done some years before, raised discord in the people, who, chattering like jackdaws in steeple, against Sir William chose this bacon their champion, whom at first I spake on, a man respected by the mob, as a fit fool to do their job, who sword in hand would rescue cattle, and give the Indians bloody battle, that had from Maryland taken flight, dreading with bonnet new to fight, who well they knew as Scottish Highlander, was hot as fiery salamander. So now we have Nathaniel Bacon on the scene. Um, here we learn about Nathaniel Bacon, the fail son, scammer, uh, and uh, inheritance receiver. Bacon, born into a prominent family in Suffolk County, England, in 1647, had spent the early 1660s wasting his father's tuition at Cambridge. After two years of <laughs> <Come> Nathaniel's <laughs> extravagances, his father had had enough. He withdrew Nathaniel from the university and hired as his tutor a famous scientist, John Ray. Although Bacon was not the best of pupils, Ray described him as a quick wit but impatient of labor. The tutor nevertheless included Bacon in a three-year scientific tour of the European continent that eventually yielded a pioneering ornithological study. Bacon returned to Cambridge, earning his degree in 1668, then moved to London to study law. Despite Bacon's status as the eldest son of a wealthy gentleman and his successful completion of his Cambridge degree, there were those who regarded Nathaniel with suspicion. Perhaps in part it was a prejudice against his family, which had included an uncle who rose high in the revolutionary government of Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of England during the 1650s. But perhaps it was something more as well, something about Bacon's personal demeanor and ethics. Bacon married Elizabeth Duke, the daughter of another Suffolk gentleman, in 1670. On the face of it, this was a good match between comparable families. Shortly before the marriage, however, Elizabeth's father rewrote his will, promising, Unto my grand disobedient daughter Elizabeth, a large inheritance upon her marriage to any man other than Bacon. <laughs> she married Nathaniel anyway. Her father disinherited her and refused to speak to her again. Wait, pause that. It was a harsh <laughs> act, but perhaps... At Is that the first time in history where someone is mentioned in a will for not getting something? Who's of no relation yet? Just be like, I want to just point this out. I'm I'm no longer on this mortal coil anymore. I've shuffled off into the ethereal plane. But I would just want to remind you, I don't want my money going towards this piece of shit. Yeah, as long as you marry any single other man on earth besides yeah. that motherfucker, yeah. you're fine. Yeah, he's I, a freak. I imagine it does happen. Uh, it has happened, um, but it is very. I think. <laughs> I mean, damn. Not a good sign. Not a good, like, vote in confidence. Didn't make a good impression. Uh, I mean, 
If you're out there thinking, like, I hope I make a good impression on uh, my significant other's parents, like, you probably are going to do better than Nathaniel Bake. Like, what was he doing? Just, like, like just pulling dogs' tails left and right? Like, what kind of, like, small activity would you have to be doing for them to be like, I want him away from well, my we'll money? Well, fi- there's an example here, actually, why what gets eventually gets him out of England. Elizabeth's father rewrote his will, promising, unto my grand disobedient daughter Elizabeth a large inheritance upon her marriage to any man other than Bacon. She married Nathaniel anyway. Her father disinherited her and refused to speak to her again. It was a harsh act, but perhaps Edward Duke had accurately gauged Bacon's character. Soon after the wedding, Nathaniel was accused of using his legal training to defraud a wealthy young neighbor of his inheritance. Awesome. When the story came out, Thomas Bacon suddenly recalled that his son, having seen diverse parts of the world before, loved to travel. (laughs) He hastily shipped Nathaniel off to Virginia to escape prosecution. Elizabeth would follow after he had found a permanent residence. Bacon arrived at Jamestown in the summer of 1674 with 1,800 pounds in his pocket, enough to instantly place him among the colony's planter elite. There he established a contact with two older cousins, Nathaniel Bacon, a wealthy planter and member of Barclay's council, and Francis Barclay, the governor's wife. Bacon made a mixed first impression. His status, wealth, and connections won him a seat on the council, but the dark, slender Bacon quickly earned a reputation for his ominous, pensive melancholy (laughs) and his pestilent and prevalent logical discourse tendings to atheism. He adopted a reserved manner. When he did speak, it was said, he revealed a most imperious and dangerous hidden pride of heart, despising the wisest of his neighbors of their ignorance. The young man, it seemed, was very ambitious and arrogant. Perhaps it was for the best, then, that Bacon decided to purchase a plantation on the remote frontier near the falls of the James. Despite having lived and traveled in exceptionally cosmopolitan surroundings, Bacon explained to Governor Barclay he would be comfortable there. He had, after all, always been delighted in solitude and, intriguingly, in mystic employment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to Barclay's annoyance, however, oh, yeah. Bacon... What What's your first reaction to mystic employments? I, I mean, is that like the the, like... PC and that time way of just saying witchcraft. I can't quite tell what exactly is going on there because yeah, I, I don't know. It's weird because it's not like I mean, there's like Christian mysticism, but like he seems like I mean that's all just like reading tomes, which he doesn't seem to be doing. Yeah, and he's already said he's sort of people call him atheistical, so I don't know like that. Always, I feel like in the, especially in like the 17th century, that usually just means like asocial. Like uh, you're just like I'm not I'm not hanging out at like the the church social or whatever. Uh, I see. Um, yeah. I'm sure he's not like Richard Dawkins <laughs> walking into Jamestown being like, you guys, uh, this guy's the worst character in English literature. Yeah. He just, he's like, you guys, I've been dissecting the native American lore and it, it fundamentally leads them to violence. These people are incompatible with democracy. Yeah, exactly. And we need to massacre them all now. And maybe we should torture them and maybe we should use an atomic bomb on them. Yeah. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm just not saying, saying people this should is do a thought that. experiment. Uh, 
I just like how everyone who runs into him is like he seems unwell. Yeah. He seems like not. A, I don't. I don't like being around him. I don't like people I know being around him. I mean to to never talk to your daughter again and write yeah. her out of a will. That's a big. There must have been some sort of indications. Like, yeah, I don't know if you do that lightly. Yeah, I mean, like everyone there. Like, I mean, this is the 1670s. Like, any man of means is kind of like insane. <laughs> and intriguingly, in mystic employments. <laughs> to Barclay's annoyance, however, Bacon did not confine himself to solitary employments, mystic or otherwise. In September 1675, just as the crisis in Indian affairs was looming over the Potomac, Bacon attacked and imprisoned a group of friendly Appomattox Indians, right. accusing them of having stolen some corn. Barclay rebuked Bacon for his rash, heady action. It was not Bacon's job to conduct Indian affairs. The king hath committed chiefly the care of the country to me, wrote Barclay, not to Bacon. His rash behavior had only increased the prevailing fear and jealousy among Virginians that all the Indians were conspired against us. Mm. Such carelessness ran the risk of driving the Appomattox into the arms of the Susquehannocks and other enemy Indians. Barclay, with years of experience at managing Virginia's elite planters, and conducting Indian diplomacy, knew that headstrong young men such as Bacon had to be reined in quickly. He did not, however, foresee just how rash and heady Nathaniel Bacon could be, nor how talented he would prove at both inciting colonists and alienating Indians. All right, I, and now I want to zoom a little bit ahead uh, to talk about Nathaniel Bacon's plantation curls. Uh, we hear about... Uh, he lived in relative comfort. Like, his dad must have been a baller. I mean, there were yeah. ties to the Cromwell family um, or government. Um, that Iranian assassination is pretty apt, though, in this. Like, it's kind of crazy how, like, the argumentation for him is is kind of like... I mean, you could almost see Nathaniel Bacon saying, like, is anyone going to mourn the fact that this Native American is dead? Like, he was a bad guy, which essentially is, like, what the discourse ended up being. Right. Not, like... Uh, this has horrible ramifications for the stability of this colony. Yeah, exactly. Nathaniel Bacon's thousand-acre plantation, Curls, sat on a peninsula jutting into the north side of the James River, a half-dozen miles below the shallow falls that marked the western end of colonial settlement. Curls had been a working plantation since 1630, well before Bacon's arrival in Virginia in 1674. Yet nearly two-thirds of the estate had not yet been cleared of woods. The fields were given over mostly to tobacco, corn, and somewhat unusually for the time, a pen for Bacon's eighty sheep. Bacon also kept a half-dozen milk cows, a young heifer and bull, and a half-dozen calves, plus eleven horses. His two dozen swine mostly fended for themselves, but the horses and milk cows needed pastures and a barn— other outbuildings included a blacksmith's shop, a tobacco barn, and a springhouse for cooling dairy products. A dozen servants and slaves worked the plantation. An Irish blacksmith named Peter labored at his forge and chewed horses, making the air ring with the clang of iron and scenting it with the smell of burning charcoal and molten iron. Another Peter, a forty-year-old, was the oldest of five adult Africans, including blind Tom and Kate, who had a young mixed-race child. The remaining five slaves, about a third of the people living at Curl's plantation, were Indians. 
John, a 40-year-old woman, 16-year-old Tom, 11-year-old Nathaniel, and two four-year-old boys. Kate and her child had a room to themselves in the main house, and she seems to have worked there. The other Indian and black laborers could most easily be found during the day, working the fields or tending to the livestock. Bacon and his newly arrived wife, Elizabeth, lived in a brick home that they had added on to the old hall of wooden construction. The addition had walls of double thickness, a tile roof, and some flourishes, such as a tile cellar floor and an arched or vaulted doorway. Buried in the foundation for good luck was an ancient Roman coin dating to the 3rd century, Mm. an apt symbol of the Bacon's European origins, culture, and identity, mingling with other material possessions that signaled their immersion in a native African and colonial world. The Bacons lived much more comfortably than most of their English neighbors, even those of comparable wealth. They had plenty of beds, bedding, towels, napkins, chamber pots, kitchenware, and other comforts. Bacon had also purchased a second property close to the falls of the James, just north of the river at Chaco Creek, which formed a natural pathway around the falls and into the interior. The overseer at Bacon's quarter cultivated an additional tobacco field, tended to a great stock of cattle, and maintained an Indian trading post. I just thought it was interesting how well set up a guy can be after he completely flunks out of England. Yeah. And has to basically has to flee. flee. Yeah, for because of making fraudulent inheritance documents. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's wild. I just like I, I mean that description of his house might as well be of like, you know, a Trump Tower yeah, <laughs> of sorts. It's like I mean he's yeah, he's as as well set up as anybody there. It reminds me also of a uh, Paris uh, in the Salem witch trials. Yeah, I was thinking about Samuel Paris also, completely flunked out of his inheritance. Yeah, he started he's maybe like where Bacon seems like very upper class um, mm-hmm. or or maybe the middle of the upper class uh in Paris might be lower of the upper class, but yeah. like that like okay, it's not working out for you here. Go Take charge of a plantation with like a dozen laborers that yeah. are dependent on you or yeah. uh, legally ob- um, obligated to be your workers. Yeah. You have a massive chip on your shoulder, right? Okay. You're now responsible for people who can't say no to you. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the poem after uh, meeting Nathaniel Bacon. That had from Maryland taken flight, dreading with bonnet new to fight, who well they knew as Scottish Highlander, was hot as fiery salamander, Wrapped in their little god of strife, who was, to draw him to the life, from head to foot scarce nine pin high, nor half so thick as Magog's thigh, the malcontents with one consent. More like short, like Napoleon short, Nathaniel Mm. Bacon short, a lot of short man, sort of uh, dunking. Rave Nat with praises compliment, then to Sir William recommend him, as qualified, would he send him with force their generalissimo against the Okanokian foe, but will... That better knew than they, the Indian game he had to play, would not on any motives yield, to let Nat govern in the field, and in derision bid them nimbly go smoke their bacon in the chimney. Now as these matters were debating, on council board scarce worth relating, news came that much disturbed Nat's quiet. Now before we get to the news that disturbs Nat's quiet, I want to talk to uh, a bit of, you know, go smoke their bacon in the chimney. There's a lot of bacon uh, puns here. Um... Mm -hmm especially when he dies, it becomes a sort of fish-slash-bacon puns. We'll get to that later. But uh, I want to play a section that kind of shows how Governor Berkeley was trying to react to this. 
basically, yeah, forts. I want to build some more forts. And people thought that forts were a boondoggle and, um, you know, basically for the elite to take in more taxes in the form of tobacco. Seemed a good way of avoiding a repeat of the troubles caused by Brent's, Mason's, Washington's, and Allerton's poor judgment the preceding summer. It focused attention on the Susquehannocks and discouraged other Indians from joining them. The Burgesses quickly approved the plan. Outside the State House, however, the forts were derided as yet another waste of tax money in difficult times. Barclay, confronted with the universal dislike of the people for the forts, suddenly found himself under pressure to give frontier inhabitants the initiative against the Indians. More than one group of colonists declared themselves ready to take arms in defense of our lives and estates, and asked Barclay to grant them a commission to attack the Indians. For the dread of the common approaching calamity, made by the giddy-headed multitude mad, and precipitated them upon that rash overture of running out upon the Indians themselves. Barclay refused all such requests, leading some to suspect that he was part of a conspiracy against the frontier planters. Yeah. Colonists whispered that the forts were merely a design of the grandees to engross all their tobacco into their own hands by converting taxes into government contracts. William Byrd's aunt, Sarah Grendon, spread the story that everyone must pay a thousand pounds of tobacco per head for the forts, as much as a typical worker could produce in a year, and that if they could not pay in tobacco, he would take their cows and feather beds. Nathaniel Bacon went a step further. The conspiracy, he told his neighbors, included the Indians themselves. He spread a rumor that Barclay monopolized a trade with the Indians and granted licenses to others to trade Folks. in exchange for a third of the skins, although in fact it was the county courts, not the governor, that issued licenses to Indian traders. Barclay and his favorites, Bacon complained, provided the Indians with firearms, which had proved so fatal to these parts of the world that I fear we shall be all lost for this commerce. To put it bluntly, Virginia had been, for a small and sordid gain, betrayed. He also believed that his own high birth carried with it a responsibility to take action in order to look after the welfare of the people here. In unguarded moments he was heard to say that the next man or woman that he heard of that should be killed by Indians, he would go out against them, if necessary, without a commission from the governor. In Charles City County, a few miles downriver from the falls of the James, one last rumor pushed planters to defy the governor. Hearing of several formidable bodies of Indians coming down on the heads of the James River, they began gathering as volunteers to go out against the Indians. For several days in April, the woods echoed with the pounding of drums, calling the men of the county to gather at Jordan's Point, a spit of land on the south bank of the James, just below the mouth of the Appomattox River. While the volunteers from Charles City County were assembling at Jordan's Point, Elizabeth and Nathaniel Bacon entertained guests at Curl's Plantation. Captain James Cruz, a close friend and neighbor, was there. Bacon's fur trading partner, William Byrd, and Henry Isham, a Charles City County planter whose estate, Dogham's, lay midway between Curl's and Jordan's Point. 
As the liquor flowed, the four men lamented the sadness of the times and the fear they all lived in. As they reached a height of drinking, Cruz suggested that they all go over and see the soldiers on the other side James River and take a quantity of rum with them to give the men to drink. Cruz, Isham, and Bird, it turned out, had already laid the plot with the soldiers at Jordan's Point. The volunteers gathered around Bacon and, all at once, shouted and cried out, A bacon! A bacon! and begged him to lead them against the Indians. I don't really understand that cheer. I think something's lost to time there. A bacon! Yeah. A bacon! Yeah, I have no like, idea. What, what, are you, what are you guys talking about? But uh, They're not as literate as us, also. Yeah, they were wasted on rum. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, one thing that is also not included in this... Um, I just want to briefly uh, glance on is uh, once Bacon has got had gotten these men behind him. I don't think it's mentioned in here. But if it is, it's too elliptical for me to have seen it. But he uh, he goes to these Oka, the uh, Okanichis um, who had refused the Susquehanna's refugee, uh, instead preferring to stay with the colonists because they had a trade relationship. And so uh, Pasakle and the Okanichis kill 150 Susquehanna for Bacon. They're like, okay, we'll go help. We'll go kill him. I just want to play this part because it really shows a bit more of why Bacon is just a horrible lunatic. This is what happens after Pasakle and the Okanichis kill uh, the Susquehannas. Refreshed, Bacon turned the conversation to the Susquehannocks. He learned that they had two forts nearby, one five miles distant, inhabited by at least 30 warriors plus women and children, and another fort ten miles away that contained a very considerable number of men besides women and children. Bacon was eager to attack the smaller fort right away, but his hosts protested that, Your men are weary and want sleep and are not fit for service. The volunteers, they insisted, should stay and rest here, and we will go and take the fort for you and bring you an account of it. The Okanichis attacked several days later, wiping out most of the 150 inhabitants of the Susquehannock's town. Returning in triumph to the Virginians' encampment outside their own town, the Okanichis displayed the scalp of the Susquehannock's king and a small mountain of captured beaver pelts, which they quickly stowed away in their own fort. They also brought seven Susquehannock prisoners as a gift to Bacon, and asked what he would have done with them. "'Kill them,' replied Bacon." The Okanichis put the last seven Susquehannocks to death with exquisite tortures, by running firebrands up their bodies and the like, as their victims struggled against the overwhelming urge to give their tormentors the satisfaction of making them cry out or beg for mercy. To the Okanichi's surprise, Bacon wanted more. He expected Posseclay to provide food enough to see the Virginian's home, and pestered him so insistently to turn over the plunder from the Susquehannock's town that some onlookers began to think that the beaver skins were the only cause of the quarrel. Pusiclay replied that his men had done all of the fighting and should have the plunder. Still, Bacon persisted. As night drew near, both sides prepared for a fight, awesome. moving into position and readying their weapons. The wrangling continued until well after midnight, until finally Pusiclay agreed, for quietness' sake, to divide the plunder. Pusiclay slipped into the fort, for a moment, there was an impasse as the Indians aimed at the English from the walls of the other two. Uh, long story short, they never are able to divide the beavers because Bacon just kills them. 
Are we the baddies? Yeah. <laughs> they just murder. Poss- Shocking. Possibly died. So goes and kills 150 Susquehannocks for him. And then says, well, I guess we can just have the beaver pelts at least, right? Yeah. He's like, no, we're going to need our cut of that. Just yeah. nuts. Not, yeah, big surprise for, you know, working for hire for a known psycho. Yeah. Now, as these matters were debating on council boards scarce worth relating, news came that much disturbed Nat's quiet of an unlawful Indian riot committed by a generation of vipers rifling his plantation, who not content the same to plunder, had overseer cut in sunder. Bacon's plantation was, in fact, uh, attacked. Of an unlawful Indian riot committed by a generation of vipers rifling his plantation, who not content the same to plunder, had overseer cut in sunder. Wherefore, at this unhappy season, without consulting first his reason, like unadvised politician, he readily accepts commission from furious mob who give their hand by him in greatest straits to stand. Thus, great as knoll as quicksot stout, at head of planters he did out, the woods of savages to clear, pursued by Berkeley in the rear, who, being obliged by his station, had sallied forth from mid-plantation, with lifeguard resolutely bent impending mischiefs to prevent, make Lilliputian cavalero as great in thought as Spanish hero, on bending ham's peccavi cry, or bacon on the gibbet high, or daring contumaciously to levy war on enemy, without the general assent of governor and parliament, who of the public good to treat, were then at Jamestown called to meet, whither disbanding volunteers, Sir William went to advise with his peers, obliged the wild goose chase to quit, not knowing how the way to hit, that Nat had in his rambles took, when he domestic cares forsook, and rashly followed empty fame, but gained a traitor's odious name, and blots whose vile characteristics you'll plainly see in the following tristics. In orders made traitor to seize on, for Bacon, not without good reason, was judged as tainted with high treason, so that by Berkeley's proclamation he got a pitch-like defamation sticking to him and generation, as in the sequel of the story appears eclipsing Bacon's glory, who, after he had put to flight the aborigines in fight, retired with great precipitation to visit country habitation, where presently, in country squabble, he was elected by the rabble to serve as Burgess, though unfit, in house of Burgesses to sit, as having been, ere in disgrace, by will advanced to higher place. So basically, Bacon contrives to get himself elected to the house of Burgesses, even though it's not really clear, or it's clear that he sort of has done this by force. Well, and also, the um, uh, he was considered an outlaw. But there's a, a funny little um, uh, moment of history where the Virginia colony did not yet have a printing press. So they had to have a town crier go from town to town and tell everyone that he, that Bacon is now an, an outlaw. And so when he got to the town where he was elected, they, his uh, uh, Nathaniel Bacon's uh, entourage was able to convince him not to go to that area. <laughs> He was elected by the rabble to serve as Burgess, though unfit, in house of Burgesses to sit, as having been, ere in disgrace, by will advanced to higher place, who Bacon raised from a shout in upper house to give his vote. However, Nat resolved to see if there he might admitted be, with forty men and mackerel gale, for the metropolis set sail, when dropping anchor twas their fate to be made prisoners of state, and then by Gardner ford on board, whose ship before the town was moored, whither in spite of all denial the rebels were conveyed for trial, 
by order of the higher uh, so Bacon comes to Jamestown and uh, is like, hey, can I take my uh, Burgess seat? And they're like, no, we're going to sink you with our guns. Yeah. And he eventually gets uh, gets captured and uh, taken before the Burgesses. By order of the higher powers, huzzahed by mob from Oaken Bowers, where instantly they were acquitted, and Bacon once again admitted at council board to take his post by Berkeley, ruler of the roast, who also promised, though not hardy, to make him general of a party intended by the government against the Indians to be sent. You know, you need to play by our rules, but if you say you're really sorry, uh, God forgives you and I forgive you, and if you behave yourself for a long enough period of time, uh, then you can get your seat back and uh, you can sit on your seat and you can... I mean, he basically advises them about the Indians right away, even before he's freed from this little moment here. Yeah. Um, it's a real, like, norms moment for his, uh, the antagonist for yes. against Bacon being, like, well, we can't nullify the results that are so obviously stolen. Yeah. Or it's just he's so obviously uh, threatened and bullied people and, like, and made it not known that he's an outlaw to get this position. Uh-huh. And then now, like... He's like, well, like I have to have my seat in some way, and you could you can hear the arguments happening at that moment, being like, he has to have it in some way. We can't just we can't just get rid of this guy. Yeah, and it's it's hard to sort of gauge the wisdom of this entirely, but it doesn't seem to look very wise. I don't know. Like we're all family men here. Yeah, it's like, do you really think shaming him, he's going to change his mind? Yeah. Or like you invoke God enough uh, three times repeatedly, God forgive you, I forgive you, God forgive you, I forgive you. It also might be true that there wasn't really much of an option for him to do, like because there was a mob coming to free him, yeah. uh, free Bacon. Uh, so maybe you could have like made him confess early and get the word out and to stop them. But anyway, let's continue here. To make him general of a party intended by the government against the Indians to be sent. But promises are scarce worth minding. And as civilians say, not binding. Grounded on mental reservation, or made without consideration, is not experienced to his cost when he, by adverse fortune crossed, imaginary honors lost. For when the rabble were withdrawn... So it looks like Bacon, his plan also might be to say he's going to give him a commission and sort of never really give him that commission. Yeah. And promised day had passed its dawn. Or putting Bacon in commission will, like a crafty politician, refused to sign the instrument, drawn up in form, for that intent, under pretense that Colonel Bacon had other private measures taken. Nat, thus deluded, thought it best to let his hot resentment rest, and patently pretended to endure what whilst in town he could not cure, with hopes he should a method find to pay Sir William in his kind which soon came into his frantic brain, nor did the project prove in vain. For as the council sat at table, you may believe me, tis no fable. A letter was to Bacon brought, with melancholy tidings fraught, importing that his loving wife lay ready to depart this life, as Nat informed the governor, desiring leave, unlucky cur, to visit his betrothed spouse, who ne'er had broken her nuptial vows, to which his excellency replied, the motion could not be denied. So, since he made such moan for his dear, the governor bid him go and see her, against the advice of faithful friends who guessed at Bacon's wicked ends, for knowing well the tricks of Nat, 
they in the letter smelt a rat, which, when too late to be detected, was found, as rightly was suspected, to come from party disaffected. That, loving Bacon very heartily, had managed matters very smartly, informing Nat that Mob was ready and in their resolutions steady, that when he'd give the sign to rise, they'd cut all Bacon's enemies, as small as meat is mined for pies. In case Will would not, with submission, put Bacon in a blank commission, this said the letter, now let's see how Berkeley's blind credulity by the impostor was rewarded, as it in story stands recorded. Nat having played this cunning trick, instead of visiting the sick, before black messenger rid post, as if the devil had driven to those, to head a fractious stubborn crew, as air or seas for refuge flew, of servants, slaves, and overseers, at least five hundred mutineers, that to insult the government by Bacon's pre-encouragement, at Nat's approach began to bluster, and hurly-burly soon did muster, like tumbled turds got in a cluster. With these new listed sons of plunder, Nat entered town to Berkeley's wonder. Who uh, tumble turds are beetles, by the way. Ah. Soon did muster, like tumbled turds got in a cluster. With these new listed sons of plunder, Nat Which is to describe the people, the basically the proletarians that are following uh, Bacon's rebellion as beetles in a cluster. Yeah. And, you know, you, you kind of see uh, Ebenezer's elite uh, leanings here. And hurly-burly soon did muster, like tumble turds got in a cluster. With these new listed sons of plunder, Nat entered town to Berkeley's wonder, who when required to make good his promises like a statue stood, Nat, threatening to give no quarter, but burn poor Will like Smithfield martyr, swearing that if he lost his aim, he'd put the city in a flame. At this the house, through fear, divide, and Berkeley's take, or Bacon's... That was a bad line read by me, but um, I'll just take it one more time. Swearing that if he lost his aim, he'd put the city in a flame. Talking about Jamestown, he's going to torch it. In whose behalf to save the hive, t'was carried in the affirmative, that Nat should general be sent, intestine quarrels to prevent, who with his new created power, extorted in an evil hour by force of arms, rid from his dwelling, like Oliver, a colonelling. First then he settles ways and means, for proper posture of defense, then fits his troops, then makes drums rattle, for march to give the Indians battle, now bringing advanced to out plantations, searching for foes of Indian nations. News comes of Berkeley's preparations, which puts the rebels to their trumps, and makes them look in doleful dumps, like Witherington upon his stumps. However, the bully re-advances to mid-plantation, since by Francis called Williamsburg makes replication to William's second proclamation. Then by each other, one and all, the rebels swear to stand or fall, and sign the league which you may see, drawn up at large in Beverly, which puts Sir William in a fright, who with his friends took hasty flight across the bay to Accomac, but thence was quickly hurried back, in time to pose this grand rebellion. That's all this canto is to tell you. And that's the end of the first canto. Now let's get to canto two. Canto two. This canto tells of Governor Will being routed by Nat Bacon's skill, of Stafford folks with treason sullied, and Gloucester men from legions bullied. Here too you'll find to make you marry all, accounts of Bacon's death and burial. <laughs> Next, I describe to you Bacon's army. You need not fear. I'm curious what you think about this because, you know, I read the poem twice and then listened to your recording of it. And 
I can't really nail down Ebenezer's opinion on Nathaniel Bacon. Uh, I think definitely dislikes him. Yeah. Um, Particularly towards the death scene here. Um, Like it's, it reminds me of uh, Hawthorne in uh, seven Gables. Right. And the death of uh, Jeff, judge Jeffrey Pynchon uh, when he dies and talks about the death there. But I think, yeah, uh, Cook is very distrustful of the mob. This is very anti-mob sort of sentiment. Berkeley is sort of, he's seen as gullible, but not like bad. Um, You know, the first opening stanzas, it says that he governed Virginia very well. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to remind me like to to tie it back to the sotweed factor, this kind of like, like scattershot form of satire where everyone involved gets a little skewered. I think that's definitely true, yeah. And so sometimes it can be hard to figure out, like, where where are you in this? And I think that's that's good for, like, a poet, or that's that's very interesting. And, like, especially someone who's, like, being one of, like, the first American poets to be, like, like you, who you are is is merely uh, based on, the like, the interaction you're having in that moment. Yeah, and I've seen a, one essay talk about, like, is satire fundamentally conservative? Because he seems like, and in that sense, it was, like, because he's not championing Bacon as a sort of you know yeah force for progress um yeah. uh but i mean there there's something i think to that and that like he does you know aggrandize bacon in the sense that he compares him to cromwell throughout the poem yeah um next i describe to you bacon's army you need not fear they will not harm you it's like that train thing that old movie like i'm just going to describe them don't be scared that uh, they're not here Wait, what? like uh um uh now I described to you Bacon's army, you need not fear they will not harm ye. Yeah, like, yeah. Don't worry, this isn't a real like a train coming directly at the camera. Oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. It's like I know my, my abilities in describing things are so vivid, yeah, but please, exactly. dear audience, do not run for these. Yeah, the they're audience. not gonna they're not gonna slaughter you. Although they were, whilst under net, like Kentish rebels led by Watt, a thoughtless giddy multitude, from Newgate and from Bridewell spewed as Straw or Ket or Wyatt rude, being bullies, ruffians, debauchees, cheats, gamesters, pimps, and raparees. With these undaunted mean rascallions, poor Shabaroon, Tatcher Demalions, the small remnants of those battalions, Nat on the frontiers turned adrift, amongst the planting herd to shift through pathless woods on his way he made to turn the town into blockade, which Berkeley, whom the mob detested, in Bacon's absence had invested. Transporting from the eastern shore, to augment the forces he had before, of arms and ammunition store, and men who fought for ready pay, twelve pence a head for every day, with plunder of all that had taken rebellious oath to Colonel Bacon, who, on the banks of Powhatan, before the intended siege began, first crammed his army every man, with hominy and pone, and got sufficient prog for pan and pot, with drams enough of aqua vitae, to make his men like devils fight ye, but ere he could the siege commence, he needed trenches for defense, which thus he made, first out he sent some horse and foot, with an intent to seize the wives of loyal party, and all that were not to him hearty. Okay, so this seizing the wives thing. Basically, Bacon makes the wives stand uh, up in place of, uh, like, um, what do you call it? The, um, uh, the palisade. Um, so they're, they're constructing these trenches and, uh, defenses, but in the meantime, before, so they don't get shot, they make the women stand up as human shields. Yeah. And that's one thing that the, um, 
glorifiers of Nathaniel Bacon had trouble. Uh, <laughs> like, it, fair enough, you massacre in like Native Americans indiscriminately. Like, go for that, yeah. dude. Yeah, we all we've been asking that's, for that. Yeah, that's what we normal all behavior. We, yeah, but you take the the you bring the women into this. Yeah, um, that's our property. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that is like where the Hitlerian element really comes in, where it's like, no, oh, this guy's not all here. Yeah, but I, honestly, like that is a capital investment. I brought that woman over here. Yeah, <laughs> like, she, yeah, she brought with her a good bucket, some horse and foot, with an intent to seize the wives of loyal party, and all that were not to him hearty. These taken, sitting at their dinners, they dressed with aprons, bibs, and pinners, and ranged them on their works in view of citadel and cannon too. So that no loyalist durst fire to make Baconians retire, lest with his foes his daughter or wife might first be slain in common slaughter. So thus by petticoats protected, he raised the works he had projected, in order to reduce the town, taking at night these lifeguards down, who trembling in the day stood like virgins bound to stumps of wood, that were ordained by fate's decree, to Hydra's jaws to be a prey, as authors tell us in the story, so were these women in their glory, on Marshall Bank obliged to stand, like mourning captives, hand in hand, leaving behind their linen gear, when Phoebus in his hot career forsook the western hemisphere, stuck artificially on poles, which made their husbands think, poor souls, they had done duty all the night, appearing still dressed up in white, to open view as Sol begun his oriental course to run, but where they slept tis hard to say, till phosphor ushered in the day, Unless with Nat a nap they took, intent as black as chimney nook. Now having that's an insinuation I did not catch on the first couple of readings. So basically, they put up. It looks like, um, put their put their clothes on poles to make mm-hmm. it look like they're still standing up there to the um, loyal troops, even though they're not. But where they slept, tis hard to say. Till uh, uh, till phosphor ushered in the day, unless with Nat a nap they took, intent as black as chimney nook. So they unless they slept with Nat, yeah. Which is like that. That reminds me of the um, or that for which the ladies linger line about um, the ch- the um, pipe being as long as a penis. Oh right, right, like right. Like it's it's a cooking body basically. Yeah, yeah. Great, great timing. <laughs> These like these women who are essentially captives being like yeah. Also, they were probably uh, that's horny. an example of what you were just talking about with like which side are you on mm-hmm. here? Like mm-hmm. these wives of the men of who, who like frankly like a few generations removed from people you're hoping are your patrons for poetry. Yeah, that you explicitly say I hope you rich people out there like this shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you want to see the the, the next installments. And you make fun of them and say they might have been fucking Nat in his yeah. tent. Yeah. I mean, funny. I mean, I got to respect it. Oh, yeah. Anyone who's like the poet laureate of this new nation of like would be Maryland also being like, and anyone involved is a moron, which is <laughs> the <laughs> which is the antithesis of what a poet laureate is supposed to be doing. Yeah. The phosphor ushered in the day, unless with Nat a nap they took, intent as black as chimney nook. Now, having well secured his men in trenches deep like pigs in pen, he female pioneers dismissed to take their rambles where they list, declaring they had done more good for him whilst on the ditch they stood than e'er their husbands would perform for Berkeley whom he meant to storm. 
who, being informed the fair were got beyond the reach of cannon shot, resolves with bacon not to dally, but boldly venture on a sally, and storm Nat's hold, though at the expense of a few men, to drive him thence, besides his mercenary troops confined on board like geese in coops, might get the scurvy, as he thought, in case to shore they were not brought. Of these, Will sends a party strong, that did to Accomac belong, commanded by one Huber Pharaoh, more used to tack a cider barrel than face a toe upon old Sorrel. The ships forthwith began to play, and with their shot clear Farrell's way, by order of the governor, but all in vain, Nat would not stir, till lucky chance did on him smile, and rendered fruitless Huber's toil, who though he had but little skill, in thoughts did vie with Machiavel, wherefore resolved with Nat to cope, strutting at head of forlorn hope, sent out to drive Nat from his trenches, well lined with men and strolling wenches. He bids his bands in martial paces by stooping down to save their faces from shot. Thus woodcocks hide their snout in bush, but leave their bodies out. When once they saw him this to do, he ordered them to do so too. Then marching on, a ball from Nat laid Farrell on his belly flat, which being observed by Farrell's bands, they all fall flat upon the sands, thinking he did it as the token of what he just before had spoken, whereby a body of foot soldiers composed of servants and freeholders that followed Farrell in the rear were forced to halt when they drew near, which made a troop of horse behind towards the marsh about to wind, to see what should be the occasion of unexpected retardation, who looking o'er towards the main thought all their forlorn hope were slain, so wheeling suddenly about they put their own reserves to rout, which made them all retire for shelter, in great confusion, helter-skelter. Excepting such as Bacon shot, embargoed dead upon the spot, and one or two that in retreat were trod in the water under feet. Had Nat now followed them to town, no doubt the day had been his own, when cowards brought from Accomac with threats came out, for fears ran back. But Bacon thought his forces were inferior to Will's numbers far, which made him not pursue the rabble, and get so little in this squabble, in which encounter some were wounded, and eight or ten were killed or drowned, whereas each man of Bacon's party were still alive, and brisk and hardy. Now that's a bit of a, it's a bit of a longer, um, <laughs> essentially he's just turning a history that was available into verse. So it's not like, you know, the sawweed factor, you have control, a lot more creative control over what you're, where you're going with. He's trying to convey narrative here. So, mm -hmm. you know, some of the stuff is interesting uh, and some of the stuff he captures, like the stuff about the wives, right? Like that's a very interesting yeah. story of uh, this tale. But other, others, it's just like sort of like, uh, what's the guy who does the long Civil War battle histories? Shelby Foote. Shelby Foote. It's yeah. like a Shelby Foote version of, uh, <laughs> of the war here, except in couplets. The general was relieved with reinforcements he received under command of Major Whaley, who had assisted Bacon daily with pieces three of heavy cannon, as good as air flung shot or shannon, which Bacon mounted on the trench in order soon the siege to clench and try with this his fresh assistance to drive the ships to greater distance, which, though as yet they'd done no harm, might neighbors prove for him too warm. The governor, at this sad news, did soon resolve no time to lose, but summoning both old and young, 
he straight persuades the trembling throng, like men to save themselves, retreating, and not like dogs run risk of beating. So, bag and baggage, they by night, to Accomac again take flight. The birds being fled, Nat thought it best, in ashes to consume their nest. So, soon as Will with gang retired, in brutish rage the town he fired. Then that he might examples make, of all that Berkeley's side should take, to show that he would prove impartial, he calls together a court-martial, condemns and shoots before departing, a poor lieutenant for deserting, who fought for Berkeley, though he'd taken the oaths before to Colonel Bacon. This is where uh, uh, Bacon burns Jamestown to the ground. <laughs> and uh, the, reason he's, the reasons he does this um, are kind of um, out of order in the poem here, but basically uh, this guy, Colonel Brent, uh, had went for Bacon early on. But when he found that Bacon was, uh, that Berkeley took over and the Royalists and Loyalists took over, um, Jamestown from Bacon, he's like, oh, well, they've, they've got Jamestown. I'm on their side. Mm -hmm. So all the, and he was to the north. And so Bacon's in between Jamestown and Brent, uh, um, so sandwiched, right? Bacon is able to get Berkeley to leave Jamestown. Uh, because they have naval superiority throughout this whole thing. Uh, but because Giles Brent is coming, now you're stuck between a Navy and Brent in Jamestown. So it's really, you can't hold Jamestown. So burning it really was the only uh, option. But it is a pretty bold option, right? Well, like, it, that it, I mean, you know, it was like Thomas Jefferson was one of the first people uh, a century later to really lionize this person as, you know, the one of the, um, well, like, for thinking people that is responsible for the revolution that he's currently inherited. Did he just gloss over this moment? Because it's like, it's really hard to make this about the crown when it's like, he just destroyed the crown jewel of Virginia. Oh yeah. And actually uh, Jefferson's a fucking idiot. If he thinks bacon is anti-monarchical. Oh yeah. yeah. Stuff. Because bacon through this entire time, we'll get to this where he explicitly says, I'm not a leveler. <laughs> I am trying to do your will. And it's Berkeley. Who's f not yeah. doing it. I'm trying to do protect people here, which is what any subject of the King should want to do. Whereas Berkeley's being a cuck and uh, <laughs> trading with them while they kill us. Yeah, if anything's like a proto, uh, like Burkean being like, it's like I'm trying to whip the monarchy into shape yeah. a little bit. But Jefferson's actually right. I think he actually is the portrait of the Enlightenment thinker. Yeah, great job, Jefferson. <laughs> Thus, having Berkeley put to rout for Greenspring, next he sacked about. Thence, with his army into Gloucester at Tyndall's Point, he boldly crossed, sir, where Bacon scarce two days had stayed at Colonel Warner's, as tis said. Before a letter by a post, which did not much disturb the host, informs him that one Colonel Brent had lest Potomac with intent in Will's behalf to give Nat battle, and make his bone in skins to rattle, with men a thousand and two hundred as nimble rogues as ever plundered, Strasordians, Indians, and new Negroes, destruction threatening two besiegers. That should have been Strafordians, not Strasordians, sorry and two hundred as nimble rogues as ever plundered strasordians indians and new negroes destruction threatening two besiegers surprised hereat as well he might not having men such odds to fight to camp nat comes in mighty heat commanding first his drums to beat then to his soldiers in close order now under colors like recorder he opes the letter guthridge sent and pumps to find his soldiers bent pretending love to government and king and country though rebellious 
Thus did old Noel and rumpish fellows. Then soldiers swear by all the gods they'd fight Brent's men at triple odds, and under Nat would singe their cods. From thence to Gloucester Courthouse straight, in rank and file they marched where fate decreed the fields should be their quarters that night, but as they were true starters for Colonel Smith's near Purton they began their march at break of day, where news was brought by quick express that Brent was lest in great distress. His men intending to desert, and most to take that Brent was left in great distress, not that Brent was lest in great distress. Again, that's a S to F mistake. Take the traitor's part, considering should they follow Brent, they might perhaps too late repent, the day they bacon hunting went. Thus cowards of a timorous heart at their own shadows often start. Quit those that most in them confide, and basely take the strongest side. So they that most to Brent pretend, and lurch do leave him in the end. Adoring here the rising sun, as in the east they say tis done. These happy tidings brought to Bacon, who by the ear wrong sow had taken, did providentially prevent a bloody war twixt him and Brent. Now Nat to the courthouse does repair, to meet the Gloucester gentry there, according to his invitation, not for the sake of recreation, but to seduce them to his measures, and gain their helping hand and treasures, which always chiefest sinews are alike of just and unjust war who mounted steeds the heroes met of propositions vile to treat, whom Nat with flattery and caresses, with artful rhetoric addresses. He tells them smiling, cap in hand, that he from friends did understand. They ne'er had signed the covenant, then says he hopes they will partake on the common cause with Patriot Bacon. To which the gentlemen replied they would not join with either side, for as they could not take the oath, so to oppose him they were loath. To which the general sternly said, they would be damned, he was afraid, with basest Williams who expected, the just man's peace, but works neglected. At this a certain officer applied to his honor, saying, Sir, you've spoken to the horse, but not the foot. Tis ten to one, but they won't do it. Quoth Nat, you miss my speech's force. I spoke to the men, and not to the horse, though was scarce worth my will to harangue them. They're such obdurate rascals, hang them. Pray you go speak to your brother creatures, Asses best know the horse's natures. However, so Nathaniel Bacon tried and sent people around to administer these oaths that say you're going to basically help him fight until he can make his case to the uh, crown. Yeah. Including if the crown sends troops that you have to fight until you can make your case clear to the crown. I mean, so- I honestly, respect on that one because that is a... I mean, how do you even make that case? Like, I try to be like, I, like I'm like i in a meeting sometimes, so I try to be like, how do I get people to like this idea? And, you know, it's just basically like a video that's like 40 seconds longer than it should be. Mm-hmm. This guy's like, you should defend the crown with me, even if the crown gets involved. <laughs> we're so, we're such supporters of the king. Yeah. <laughs> that we will slaughter the king's men until we can make it clear to him, you know, how he's been misled. Yeah. It's kind of like the people that are like, like we love the police and we love having our own little militias, and we will yes. we will slaughter the police yes. to show you how much blue lives matter if uh, you try to come and get our guns. Yes, yes. Uh, respect to every single cop that has never done anything wrong in this country ever. And also, I have a uh, weapon I've modified to be fully automatic in case tyranny happens in America. <laughs> I mean, tyranny in the form of what? People administer in universal health care? Or what does they look like? Anyway. 
However, at a second meeting at Warner's house for farther treating, the Gloucester men the engagement signed, and willingly with Bacon joined. Meanwhile, there came a letter or inviting Nat to the eastern shore, humbly requesting that he would come there to rescue public good from governor who seized provision with horses, men, and ammunition, and would not pay late expedition. When they at Jamestown ran away, fighting purple twelve pence a day, which eastern shore men did not like, and made them take against will a peak. Pray Bacon's party to assist them, for if they'd come, none should resist them. The leather too, in Bacon's power, proposed to put the governor, and of his loyal party three, Ludwell and Cole and Beverly, which friends the governor most respected, his cause by them being most protected. So probably to human thinking, Berkeleyan interest was just sinking. But providence now intervened, and Tunat's life soon put an end, who on a sudden being pent by dangerous illness up intent, one Bremington against Indian sent, intending when he did recover to eastern shore to hurry over. On these designs was baking harping, at Berkeley's conduct often carping, when death at chamber door came rapping, as moss caught mare took bacon napping. But ere he was by death arrested, with his commission he invested one Johnson alias called Ingram to head the rebellious army Trinctrum, as Richard Cromwell, wise and brave, like Quixotts, Sancho, fool and knave. But hero now confined to bed, sir, by flux and fever, as tis said, sir, by lice was eaten up alive, that crawled through skin as bees from hive, from maggots hatched in hot brain, where passage out they sought in vain, through brazen front, so down they went, and through his pores found easy vent, where marching out in numerous armies, they seized Squire Bacon, V and armies. So vermin slew this public evil, that feared not God, nor man, nor devil. The general thus, as herring dead, was wrapped in winding sheet. Okay, so before we get the like herring dead uh, part, I just want to touch on the actual cause of death and some of the reactions to it. So yeah, Bacon died October 26th, 1676, a day recorded by Captain Morris as one of ra uh, rainy, misty weather. Basically, uh, this is how uh, James D. Rice puts it. At some moment during the fall, perhaps while huddling in the fall of, uh, like I said, 1676, perhaps while huddling in a crowded, damp trench before Jamestown, Nathaniel Bacon began scratching at the body lice crawling under his clothing and feeding on his blood. Soon such, quote, swarms of vermin bred in his body, end quote, uh, that he had to burn his clothing every time he changed. At least one of the lice had previously fed upon the blood of someone carrying the bacterium Rickettsia prowazicu, uh, which then bred in the louse's gut until Bacon scratched the louse's bite, crushing the host and grinding its infected feces into the small wound it had made in his flesh. Mm. A week or two later, Bacon fell ill with a crushing headache and other flu-like symptoms and was bedridden in the Gloucester County home of Major Thomas Pate with a full-blown case of typhus. Uh, to this was added a bloody flux that turned his bowels inside out. By mid-October, Bacon was delirious, uh, very much dissatisfied in mind, inquiring over and anon after the arrival of the frigates and forces that he expected soon from England. Even a visit from the Reverend Wading, released from his imprisonment in the controversy over Bacon's oath, gave the general no relief. Nathaniel Bacon died, yeah. And that's like I said. So, not a great way to die. No. 29 but, years old. Body lice. 
Yeah. Uh, Turn your bowels inside out. That you get bloody diarrhea. Yeah. So, um, some uh, some poetry related to his death that people were sharing. Um, <laughs> um, but this is Berkeley's favorite epitaph. Only two lines long uh, came from uh, the pen, or so he said, of a quote, honest minister. <laughs> Uh, bacon is dead. I am sorry at my heart that lice and flux should take the hangman's part. Um, so that, that was nice. Berkeley in his last few years, he really loved that part, that little couplet. So, (laughs) and sunk into an arm of the ocean because his fearful friends had notion that, oh yeah. So, uh, so bacon gets the bin Laden, uh, treatment where he gets buried at sea. Yeah, SEAL Team 6 kind of came in and took out Bacon. <laughs> Lice Team 6. Yeah. They're... As herring dead. So vermin slew this public evil that feared not God, nor man, nor devil. The general thus, as herring dead, was wrapped in winding sheet of lead and sunk into an arm of the ocean because his fearful friends had notion that if his carcass should be found by adverse party underground to rot on gibbet bones of gnat like bones of knoll would have the fate. So they secured them in the water from foes, indignities, and laughter. Satan of old, possessing swine, pickled his pork in Neptune's brine, in which sad pickle for his kitchens. Tis feared he is soused as poor Bacon's flitchens. He died or... This is such a tortured metaphor because he he talks about... He keeps talking about Bacon as a food being prepared for uh, dinner. Yeah. But because he's buried at sea, he's now a fish. Yeah. But he still tries to bring the bacon thing into it. Uh, yeah. Not it's not great poetry, but it's all it's it's kind of respectable and just how petty and um, sort of insensitive it is. You can tell it's like you know like the po like the poet and him's like what am I just not supposed to- the guy's name is Bacon yeah. like am I just not supposed to bring this up? In which sad pickle for his kitchens, tis feared he is soused as poor Bacon's flitchens. He died or the Murian that is true, though Karen yet Dell takes his due. At smallest game, he'll take a bout, rather than unconcerned to stand out. Thus when he had no fish to fry, how pork would do, he longed to try. He driving hogs need run, tis said, though brought to market ne'er so bad. Now though the creepers spoilt their bacon, for which at first they sadly take on, yet bacon's friends, I say in jest, of their bad market, made the best, which brought their minds some little rest. Or though they could not save their bacon, they saved his bones from being taken. All right, who's we, born for hanging? Proverb says that that's my personal favorite part, just because he's completely out of control yeah. in this. He's just like, well, this is the last time that uh, Nathaniel Bacon's going to come up, so I'm just I'm throwing them all out. He's <laughs> like, what the fuck is he even talking about? They saved his bones from being taken. Were his bones at risk at any point from being taken? But it's like, well, I've got to have save your bacon in there somewhere. Well, it's like the only risk they were at being taken is the thing about, you know, that this is a, like three stanzas earlier, literally, where they're like, they want to make sure that the royalists can't take his bones and like desecrate it, basically. Right. Right. Yeah. But like, you already said that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, come on, You're man. bringing it up again because the rhyme works. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, well, I'm not, I'm not ending this poem until steal his bacon is gone. It's just not, I'm not, I'm. I'm not a, I'm not the poet laureate of Maryland unless I can get that in there. Who's born for hanging? Proverb says, "Ne'er needs fear drowning in the seas." So vice versa, instead of tree, the fates ordained net to the sea. Who justly merited the halter, but not the fates decrees will alter. Though Tadman better, he had swung such bacon being best well hung. 
But now beneath the restless billow, he rests who ne'er had rest on pillow. The year that Nat set sail for Styx was 1676. In the month October, the 18th day, so I've no more of him to say. Canto 3. This canto shows how Will came o'er to chase the malcontents once more, who under Ingram as their head were to deserved destruction led, till at the last these rebels sell, and that is all I have to tell. The news that Bacon was departed made Berkeley once again light-hearted. But no Nat's dead, yet sad distraction, springs from the root of Bacon's faction. The rebels for the good old cause persist against governor and laws, who might the main intended still with bloody rods to whippoorwill. By fighting under Ingram's banners and Whaley's, whose rebellious manners, like Lambert and like Fleetwood Bold, provoked Sir William, now grown old, to try if he could stem the tide of treason and ambitious pride, that, like a sudden inundation, had drove him from his habitation, he then conceived the surest way to quash the rebels o'er the bay, was now to strike whilst iron's hot, and so to make traitors go to pot, before they could their courage rally, so now he thought not fit to dally. Thus, at Noel's death, as stories tell us, Will docked the rump of the rebellious, of civil wars first clipped the pinions, proclaiming Charles in his dominions, for of Virginian territory, tis said to their immortal glory, this ancient colony most loyal, stuck longest firm to party royal, and having last against Cromwell stood, did first restore the common good, being of all the English reckoned, the first that dare own Charles the second. All this was done, as we are told, under Sir William wise and bold, who now to save his youthful praise in his declining aged days, did bravely rouse his drooping spirits, and, to augment his former merits, for good of king and colony, resolves to conquer or to die. The scene thus changed, it was not long before he sent a party strong, in sloop or shallop which please, from Accomac, Nat's friends to seize, that on York banks the coast to guard, at Auburn's house kept watch and ward, where Colonel Hansford, with some others, who in rebellion were sworn brothers, was after some resistance made by Auburn's wanton wife betrayed, and thence across the bay conveyed, and hanged at Accomac, tis said. Now that is not how Hansford was taken, really, um, or, or at least the details are much more interesting and would have been very interesting to Ebenezer Cook. Uh, I'll say them briefly here. This is from, again, uh, James D. Rice, Tales from a Revolution. Uh, basically, um, these. this is a position that uh, Hansford was holding, Hansford, again, on the rebellion side. These positions commander to find views downriver and would be very difficult to take by surprise, especially if their commanders had the wits to consult a tide table to determine when loyalist ships would be most likely to sail upriver. Yet somehow Hansford was caught completely by surprise on the morning of November the 7th. His men failed to notice the loyalists sailing upriver, rowing ashore, and climbing the hill to Reed's mansion. Hansford was sound asleep when the raiders broke into his room. <laughs> Perhaps, as some said, he was tired and distracted because he had, quote, forsaken the capital of Mars, or mm. war, uh, to, quote, to pay his oblations in the temple of Venus, or sex. Hansford's men were also caught napping, and before reinforcements could arrive, Beverly had carried off 20 prisoners back across the bay to Accomac, where they were immediately court-martialed. So he was literally having sex when... Um, would have worked with that Neptune reference uh, earlier. Up all night having sex. What would be the oh? Where he said that with ne uh, in the sea, he makes a reference to Neptune. You do Brian. have yeah, you do have all of he the. He teed uh, it up. Just didn't yeah. got distracted by the bacon. 
This expedition being over, Will, who with friends did live in Clover, of whom the Maud did vilely talk, resolved the matter not to balk, and so embarks without delay, then for York River plows the bay, where having wind which proved a flanker, at Tyndall's point he soon cast anchor, from whence he sends forth men six score, bold hardy sailors, less or more, marching in ranks of different sizes, few scatterlopers to surprise, of malcontents and beerless boys, that scarce had left their childish toys, who at a house not far from thence in arms were mustered on pretense of standing in their own defense, commanded by the foresaid Whaley, as great a rogue as Walter Bailey. But lest his soldiers should prove tardy, he sends some friends, both bold and hardy, as lawful Ludwell with intent to give the more encouragement, lest Hubert, who commander went, should fail again in his descent, who of the wound was now quite well he got when he at Jamestown fell. These now at Piney Point safe landed, by Hugh, as said before, commanded, their heads do first together lay, to study out the safest way, without much loss to win the day, on which they did not long consult, before they came to this result, that is, if sentry should demand, who's there, or order them to stand, to seize and to gag him, the pell-mell, to enter into rebel's cell, which had no barricades by chance, so they the easier might advance, and take the house in dusk of night, without the risk of bloody fight. But pray behold the bad conclusion of this well-grounded resolution. For steady of this sentry's call, they made reply with musket-ball, so they by sentry were betrayed, who, when they shot, loud howling made, to give alarm to those in the house, who scarce awake, half-drunk soon roused to arms, and headlong falling out, put Farrell and his men to rout, who dropping instantly astern, secured themselves behind a barn, to which in the dark they quickly got, to screen themselves from rebel shot, where they long pelted at each other, though none was killed in all this pother, excepting Hubert, who in the chase fell once again upon his face, when pop came ball from musket barrel that through the back shot Hubert Farrell, the stoutest braggadocio must at last lays honor in the dust. So pitcher now you see is broke, at Jamestown cracked by random stroke, from that as I before have spoke, his men, observing him to fall, not by the sword, as did King Saul, aboard their vessel, haste and hurry, to avoid the danger of the flurry. Through thick and thin, through mire and sands, one pair of heels worth two of hands. Happy the man that first can get to shallop, though like drowned rat wet. Higgledy-piggledy malpris shot, heels over heads away they trot, till safe unto their boat they got. Even those that others' legs did use in getting out to save their shoes run on their own legs now to choose. When Hubert's missed straight four or five, resolved to find him dead or live, who for their valor dearly paid, being by Whaley prisoner made. Now though Sir William lost the day by Hubert basely given way, yet Gloucester men, full thirty score, with Middlesexians many more, being raised, he's brisker than before. But see the turns of fate, for soon his matters go but badly on. For Ingram had no sooner heard that all his force for will appeared, but straight he sent Lieutenant Walkett to Middlesex to try to balk it. Ingram is basically a guy who uh, took over from Bacon. In the uh, in the summer before, when Bacon was still alive, uh, Berkeley wrote a letter saying, Everything is now deplorable, and three young men that have not been here two years in the country absolutely govern it. Mr. Bacon, Mr. Bland, and Mr. Ingram. Uh, Ingram being one of them. Yeah, he arrived in 1674, married a wealthy widow. They're all tied up in inheritance schemes. They all, yeah, inheritance, you need to find a woman who had a rich dad. Yeah. Um, and then you're set. 
Uh, you can just start going just genocidal. Well, there's actually a recent book that I should buy. Um, uh, Audible keeps wanting me to buy it, and it actually does look apropos. I think it's called like They Were Her. Yeah, They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. Mm. Almost sort of like a legal uh, entity that helps uh, transfer property to hopefully a male heir. Right, yeah. Um, So, yeah, Ingram, there's not... Not a whole lot known about him. Some people thought that might have been a fake name that he like avoided being hung in England and escaped and made a new thing. But who knows what it is? He he married well, and uh, that's what made him. That all his force for will appeared, but straight he sent Lieutenant Walkett to Middlesex to try to balk it, who marched with thirty able horse, the choicest of the rebels' force, and kept the fort from Major Smith, a friend of Berkeley's, spite of his teeth. For all he had five hundred men, so Smith soon marches back again to dwelling house of Mr. Pate, where matters were in dismal state. For Ingram having information that Smith had left Pate's habitation, whips in between the house and Major, and swore like Tinker in his rage, sir, that lest the garrison would surrender on terms that he should please to tender, he'd shoot or burn or hang or kill each person that declared for will. Which naughty words of wicked Horson did so affright poor Captain Parson, who Smith had left to guard the house in peace a man in war a mouse, that not accustomed to such sport, he forthwith gives him up the fort, resolving now to meet his church, and ne'er more leave her in the lurch, but stick to his text and mind his book, since Mars had such a dismal look, ne'er fight again with temporal sword, but fight the battle of the Lord, and never use a sword at all, besides the sword that's spiritual. Ingram, obtaining this rendition, found store of arms and ammunition, with provender for man and beast, which was laid in for Captain Priest, on which he feasts yet had the sense to keep in posture of defense, lest Major Smith should in the center of all his jollity re-enter, and spoil his stomach by insisting on satisfaction for such twisting of ducks and capons, well worth praising, and roasters not of his own raising. Smith, like a lion to his den, was now returned to Pates again where much against his expedition he Ingram found in warlike station, which proved to him a sad vexation. It made him mad, but yet not quite enough to make him Ingram fight, having more wit in this his anger than to fall foul on this great stranger. Whilst Ingram, on the other hand, did but on part defensive stand, each feared the dance first to begin, so curs at one another grin. Thus they continue scolding, bawling, like cats in cockloft, caterwauling, the sum of the rebels were four blows, being half-starved for want of clothes, who envisioning Spruce Berkeleyan's bravery longed for their clothes to cloak their knavery, whilst the other Ingramites thought best, though naked, in whole skins to rest, who on the belly fully bent, with meat and drink, were well content. But now let's take a turn and see how Major Smith and men's agree. He and some glossus strain gentry were into pates for forcing entry, who bold and zealous were for battle, to life or limb though ne'er so fatal. Others, by far the better Christians, wanted retreat to greater distance, who thought to spill man's blood was heinous, saying the guilt of blood shan't stain us. A middle sort, I now must mention, that had a kind of mixed intention, who wisely minded that there are most bloody accidents in war, but on the other hand to fly would brand them with black infamy. This sort... Isn't it interesting how he's sort of dissecting the different sort of ways people react to the war? Like certain people say, you know, bad stuff. What does it say? Um, 
Uh, others, by far the better Christians, wanted wanted retreat to greater distance, who thought to spill man's blood was heinous, saying the guilt of bl- blood shan't stain us. And then there's a middle set that's sort of like the middlers. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, war is tough, but on the other hand, to fly would brand them with black infamy. So we got it. We can't just run away. Like, I don't know. It's It's... It reminds me of what do they say about the percentage of people in America that supported the revolution? Was it like the three percent? Three percenters. And so yeah. now you have like three percenters who think they're like the modern American revolutionaries, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, the, the, but that's. I think we we're always sort of fascinated by like, especially pre-polling. Like, what kind of? How many people are actually behind this? Mm-hmm. Um, sort of. Thing? What does it actually take to like take over and, and do some sort of revolutionary act? Partheid strife at last fly would brand them with black infamy. This sort proposed capitulation to save their lives and reputation. In this tripartite strife at last the light-heeled gentry t'others cast. Then each man down his arms does lay, and winked with fear all run away, who though they save their hides and clothes, yet thus their arms and honor lose. Nay spoil their coats with blood of coward, St. Harold under Marshal Howard, like harmless lambs they're now become, who blustered at first noise of drum, and roared like phalarous bull, with rage and windy courage full, a mighty cry but little wool, like Lewis Smith with many men marched out and then run back again. Now comes the trick of Captain Grantham, which some think base, but I think handsome. He long had traded in... Now comes the trick of Captain Grantham, which some think sick, but I think handsome. Now this trick is... It doesn't even really go into the full trick, but uh, well, let's let's hear what he describes as the trick of Grantham. Who Grantham is uh, Captain Thomas Grantham. He's a merchant. Uh, he's the captain of a merchant vessel. He sails to Virginia often in the winter to you know take and uh, load um, uh, and export tobacco. He had a, a ship called the Concord, which could carry five hundred tons. Uh, f- uh, hold 50 men and care and had 32 guns. So is a big uh, beast, but Grantham basically is a big trader. So he can, he's sort of the middleman. He comes into this conflict, not knowing there's a rebellion going on and basically going past the um, tripwires or the patrols that are like, Hey, these are patrolled waters. There's a war uh, and finding out later, but he's, he's able to, um, be a sort of negotiator between Berkeley and the rebels. Now comes the trick of Captain Grantham, which some think base, but I think handsome. He long had traded in the parts, new planters' tempers, and their hearts, and had great influence far and near, either for interest, love, or fear, as many worthy traders have, who in their hands still keep the staff. By keeping planters' egg and nest, pray don't be mad, tis but a jest. This captain cut out for the work, in the nick of time arrived in York and privately on will attending, got management of the cause depending. For Will and he together lay their heads the traitors to betray. When under rose, they had agreed to Ingram Grantham goes with speed, to try what could be done by skill, since arms had faced in cause of will. Grantham, a natural rhetorician, a merchant, tar, and politician, did try the words as smooth as oil, if he could stubborn Ingram foil, and walk it both to reason bring, who taking arms against the king, had lives and fortunes forfeited, and were in law already dead. As Grantham told them, adding further, he really thought it willful murder to kill poor subjects on pretense of standing in their own defense, which could not be since, as he heard, they by Nat's compass blindly steered. 
So if their course they would not alter, they soon be moored to tree by halter. So begged them well to weigh the case, and mercy by all means embrace, whilst certain mercy could be found, before the man of war struck round, with men ticks decks, and arms in the hold, chuck full like Grecian horse of old, thus he advised them to submit to government if they thought fit. At this so basically, uh, you're already dead because you're traitors to the king. But yeah. you have a chance right now to... We can forget all this. They both began to look as if they had been thunderstruck, which Sligo saw, and then he said, Since you dead-hearted seem to be, I will with Berkeley stand your friend, who to request may condescend, perhaps a piteous ear to lend. If you surrender to his mercy... He'll pardon, I believe, by hearsay. Besides, sometime with him I... He has to say I believe because he didn't really have sign-off uh, from Barclay to say all this stuff. Undescend, perhaps a piteous ear to lend. If you surrender to his mercy, he'll pardon, I believe, by hearsay. Besides, sometime with him I spent, before I last to England went. And then to me he seemed inclined to be compassionate and kind. So knowing him and knowing you, I'll tell you what you'd best to do. And if you'll do as I would have you, I dare believe that I can save you. This friendly cordial advice made both the wolves as quank as mice, both condescending for to take the terms that he should for them make. The terms agreed he does propose that they their minds must not disclose, nor let their army know what he with both their honors did agree, but in their noodles private keep all, till he had fathomed the people. This done the captain tax about, and next addressed the rebel rout, but with these folks, Sly Grantham found that he should gain but little ground, unless the Weedles he could nick em, and so into a halter trick em. Well, knowing that he had to do with runaways and freemen too, at length he saith, good gentlemen, you know that I long time have been a traitor he So he calls the runaway and freemen good gentlemen to, uh, in, to start his uh, entreaty to them. Here, where I have got a deal to help to boil my pot. But now, I tell you to my cost, my trade is likely to be lost a long time. And then he's like, basically, this is good for, we all need to come together. This war is bad business. We all want to eat, you know, chickens and pots. Mm -hmm. And uh, we should come together and stop this. I have been a trader here where I have got a deal to help to boil my pot. But now, I tell you to my cost, my trade is likely to be lost. Whilst you bear arms in this your post, poor crops are made, tobacco low. What I shall do, I do not know. Tobacco lost, that should have been. Lost. My trade is likely to be lost. Whilst you bear arms in this your post, poor crops are made, tobacco low. What I should... Never mind, it should be tobacco low. I'm just going to take this out. They'll do, I do not know. For whilst you here are nothing doing, merchant and planter run to ruin. You have been all, saith he, good sirs, my friends, acquaintance, customers, and often have a room to try my kindness to the colony. Being bound in interest and honor, to love and value such a donor. But you, Baval, and then he swore, who have been dealers at my store, excuse me, therefore, if I be for your own good, too frank and free. I left a fleet moored in the downs, freighted with redcoats, bloody hounds, that Charles had sent to aid Sir William, to seize the rebels and to kill him. At this they glibly swallow bait, and for advice impatient wait, which they request that he would give him, and at this ticklish point relieve him. He soon replied, I'll go and try to sound Sir William by and by. 
I dare believe his heart is tender, and he'll forgive if you surrender on terms like these at first suppose. There was indemnity for those that freemen are, and then for all the listed soldiers. Suppose for them I get their pay, and get the servants freed, what say ye? So he offers to get the servants freed too, which is something that Bacon also offered uh, at a desperate moment when he needed people to fight on his side. And this is actually what makes this interesting on a surface level is, you know, freedom, right? Like, we're going to promise you this. Uh, we're going to get you out from these indentures. You just need to help us this moment. Yeah. Or you just need to help us overthrow this government. Yeah, um, a way out of just this crushing economic setup that they're all in. Yeah, and I'm just saying, like, in terms of student loan debt, um, no, I'm just yeah, <laughs> yeah. When is the Nathaniel Bacon of the student loan debt going to come yeah, in? Yeah, exactly. We go after um, we storm the uh, Hawaiian resorts that <laughs> the uh, loan providers and servicers mm-hmm. take their uh, corporate retreats to. For those that freemen are, and then for all the listed soldiers, suppose for them I get their pay and get the servants freed. What say ye? To this they soon unanimously. With thanks and joy did all agree, but yet before with them he parted, thinking the generals hollow-hearted, he bid them not let Ingram know what they had thus contrived to do, lest he and Walcott should prevent what was their interest and intent. This done they parted, Grantham went down to his ship, they to the tent. But twas not long ere Grantham brought the pardon which the rebels sought, which being drawn in ample manner, induced them soon to strict their banner. Next day aboard a sloop there stowed, and down to Tyndall's point are towed, their arms being first secured with care, lest they should still persist in war. There's, there's a somewhat truth, but there's it glosses over a little bit of it when it says, you know, to this they unanimously, thanks and joy, did all agree. Not in exactly all of them. There were some holdouts. And uh, let's go back to James D. Rice to hear about some of those. Grantham suggested a third option. He promised them their freedom and offered himself as a hostage until Barclay confirmed it. Several hundred men surrendered and returned to their homes, but eighty slaves and twenty servants held out, hoping to join the brickhouse garrison three miles away. Rather than fight such a desperate and well-armed group, Grantham agreed to let them take a small sloop from the garrison. Once aboard, the rebels discovered that Grantham had secretly removed its sails. They had little choice but to accept his offer to tow them to the brickhouse. As they approached the brickhouse garrison, the rebels spotted a fourteen-gun ship lying at anchor. To their horror, Grantham towed the rebels' sloops before the larger vessel and trained its guns on the rebels. If they did not give up their weapons, he threatened, he would sink and destroy them all. They surrendered with a great deal of discontent, saying, Had they known my resolution, they would have destroyed me. Disarmed, the holdouts were imprisoned on the Concord until Grantham could return them to their masters. First, however, Grantham had to return to the rebels who had already surrendered. So yeah, that's Grantham's trick. Is this, it, it reminds me of like a Dark Knight thing, but it's that's not even like the you know the boat scene with like the wheel oh, the right. inmates and the, yeah, yeah. But like the thing where like okay, uh, like it's such a weird trick, like to get them on the boat. We're gonna hold out. Like, do not accept that boat ride. I yeah, will say. yeah. Don't accept a ferry ride from people from a guy that you think just destroyed your rebellion yeah um, if they had aesop's fables at this time they should have known not to take that 
that fairy that's ride. true yes but i mean to to and it's it, it is the more radical right the the indentured servants and the slaves that had more to gain from continuing the fight uh-huh. as opposed to like ingram or like they these were the people quickest to uh say okay i see what you're saying yeah yeah um i don't want to die uh or i don't want to you know be hung uh basically which is a lot of people were so let's continue a little bit uh final couple minutes of the poem Treats them with good cheer, with pork and beef and drams and beer. Then after mutual compliment, each to their habitation went. With joyful hearts, the planters set to work with axe and hoe to get their bread with each had often wanted, since last they'd corn and tatoes planted, resolving never more to enter, nor core in civil wars to venture. Now, readers, you must understand, you are arrived in sight of land, as said Diogenes of old, when one a tedious story told. For finding the conclusion near, there's land, saith he, brave boys, don't fear. Thus you may know by this illusion, my story's almost at conclusion. For now Sir William's got ashore, and safe arrived at home once more, his house by friends being now retaken, from garrison, put there by bacon, whence goods and prog were took, but drummond, and poor French valet paid for summoned, who almost starved and famished found, were soon trussed up, twelve foot from ground, and now each party seemed at ease, supposing not could break their peace. When council and assembly thought that some o the archist rebels ought by death to make some satisfaction for all the ills of late distraction to frighten folks from traitorous action. Then here and there did rebels swing on limbs of trees like dogs in string to put the saddle on right horse, the vilest hangs in chains and course. So Tony Arnold, who kept fairy, was thus preferred to Charon's wary. Thus oft the villain's offspring find just vengeance, when alike inclined to do the same as dad had done, and into punishment will run. May all such rebels to this state, for Arnold's crimes have Arnold's fate, which basest rebel did atone, for hundreds who less harm had done. Now having told, O oh, the greatest villain, you can't expect me to go still on, and other rebels' names bespatter, so mums the word about this matter. I've said enough, I really think. The more tis stirred, the more twill stink. So much for hanging and for killing. Enough, I hope, for half five shillings. For I've no more of this to tell. Ere you red sought, we'd rest a spell. So for the present, sirs, farewell. Um, yeah, this is, it was interesting when you were asking at the beginning about, you know, like, what what do you know of Bacon's Rebellion? And it's one of those things, like, as a phrase, I feel like we all know it, like, in some sense. Like, it, at some level of schooling, it had hit you even if you know like there was some unrest in virginia before the revolution i think it's really interesting that like you know it became kind of like this famous like prelude because of thomas jefferson and others looking for some sort of historical precedent for their revolution i think that's something like really common in in revolutions is something i've like noticed especially in modern ones like um What's, what, what jumps out to me is uh lincoln's cooper union address which he gave in uh the winter of 1860 and it really put him on like on the map as like a serious uh political contender for the presidency and he said just as much that that this is what gave me the presidency and the entire speech is an argument that the founding fathers are actually on my side that they want to destroy and get rid of slavery which is uh like (laughs) if maybe one or two but if you were to ask like any founding father like would you support you know like a army invading the south to liberate slaves it would probably be hover around like zero like none none would but there's something about that i find really interesting as like a form of discourse that people who are want to do revolutionary or things especially like in a democratic 
uh, like or like to get people's votes, they do want to make it kind of conservative in a way where it's like this has always been the case. And I think something that happens in in that osmosis is that you bring in things that you weren't you didn't want to that you can't excise this kind of version of history and say we're this is us. And I think that there's ugly things that come with it, and you can kind of see it in our discourse now where it's like, well, like the founding fathers like this, and it's 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 not like correlative i feel like i can't get like you know like like a to b but you can't just like thomas jefferson can't just be like uh bacon's rebellion was actually uh, was actually us before us so he's one of us because you don't just get to say that you bring the revolutionary part in everything comes with it and i think everything is a part of that discourse even if it's not spoken of and this kind of like racial politics and and like and wanting to wipe out like the other like that comes with too it, even like it's on like a like a more granular granular level in our discourse i guess i would yeah like one way to kind of elucidate the point is it's almost like the rhetorical version of like operation paperclip where you're like we're going to bring these nazis in now the nazi state has collapsed because we need them for their science and assuming that nothing else is going to come with that like deciding to appropriate these people for your own means. And I think doesn't Hitchens have like an essay about that where he's like, there are things that are coming in that you weren't expecting to come in. Yeah. And, and that's not to say that Thomas Jefferson had enlightened views of native Americans or African Americans by any means, but there's something about like, this person's just a revolutionary. It's not a big deal. And now it's like in all of our classrooms and there's other things that come in. And when, when, you know, there's like a reactionary movement that's taking over the country, like they're not wrong when they can, <laughs> they can cite these people who have done what they want to do. Yeah. They're like, they're wrong. They're, they're lying, but telling the truth at the same time. Yeah. They're telling like, the truth despite themselves. They're telling like, like if Hitler said, "I I love bacon," I'm not gonna do the accent, but uh, I love bacon because he's just like, we need to fucking kill people to make more room so we can have more shit and ex- like you know, mm-hmm. he'd be that would be accurate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from his perspective, yeah. right? And it would also be fairly accurate from uh, Virginia Planters that would become founding fathers' perspective. Yeah. Um, and there is a through line there, but. that's the dark through line that you can't talk about unless you're Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, Judge Washington loved his real estate too. Um, The through line you have to talk about is about freedom, right? But yeah, like you say, if you don't address this, you're inviting people to a party that like you, you just scratch the surface a little bit and you're like, wait a second, this is fucking lunacy. Yeah. Oh yeah. We talked about how the, the holdouts were the more, the, the indentured and the slaves that had the most to gain. Uh, one of the reasons that this this rebellion failed was that, and it's sort of this is very akin to MAGA um, in the sense that the, Donald Trump did the tax cuts, but those were super unpopular. They're the mm-hmm. first tax cuts in like modern history that you can't run on as a political party. Yeah, but what he can do is ramp up deportations and put people in concentration camps, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, like, if this had if this um, rebellion had the desire to be a leveling one. That's what ultimately also doomed it, which is, I would say, different than the situation we're in now. But for its time, it's a, it's a lesson because, as e, uh, Ethan A. Schmidt writes here, in the fall of seven, or 1676, Bacon turned to attack Berkeley supporters and his men, either in violation of his orders or in accordance with them, looted the estates of many of Virginia's great planters. In response, many of the property holders whose support had 
made his rebellion possible, deserted Bacon, and thus doomed the rebellion. In other words, when the rebellion ceased to be about killing Indians and instead became an attack on wealth in general, Bacon's rebellion suffered the fate as the Lawn Creek the, suffered the same fate as the Lawn Creek's uprising and several others before it. Only the destruction of Indians could maintain the brief unity forged across all ranks of Virginia society during 1676. To underline that point, I also want to point out uh, this section here. Um, and this is Bacon and Berkeley both playing politics, uh, trying to um, suggest that they're the one loyal to the king. But uh, it points out how uh, Bacon was explicit that he doesn't have any sort of leveling ambitions commander-in-chief to the declaration of war against the enemy Indians. He also pushed through additional laws pardoning all treasons committed since March 1st and barring from office two of Barclay's prominent supporters. Barclay spent much of the weekend writing a long, humiliating letter to Charles II, praising the manifestly sincere and loyal Bacon and excusing Bacon's followers for being somewhat irregular in the method of their proceedings. At the same time, however, he secretly wrote a second letter to be hand-carried to England by his wife, Frances. This letter told a completely different story, one in which he and his supporters feared for their lives at the hands of young men that have not been two years in the country. Bacon was trying to overturn the entire political order by appealing to the lowest ranks of society. The new governor, Barclay concluded, should come in a frigate, that is, with military force. Bacon raced to get out his own version of events. He penned a competing letter to Crown officials, explaining our general aversion to Indians as His Majesty's enemies. He also wrote to his father in England to help in spreading his version of events and addressed the public in a plea for opposing the Indians without the governor's order. Bacon was especially anxious to deny that his was a social revolution or even a rebellion against the king's authority. No man could perceive in my manner, estate, or manner of living any sign of leveling or rebellion. His was not a challenge to the existing order, but rather its fulfillment. Governor Barclay had failed in his responsibilities at a critical moment, and Bacon had merely allowed himself to be drafted as the country's friend. Letters from Bacon's wife and friends backed up his account. Meanwhile, Barclay's friends were preparing to send off a sheaf of letters telling the governor's version of events. On Saturday night... So yeah, that's sort of the propaganda war. And like we said earlier, no um, demands for political reforms, say for instance... Uh, enfranchise these people mm -hmm. uh, were made uh, and actually not a single enemy native was killed by Bacon's men only friendly ones <laughs> so um, that's Bacon's rebellion for you but you did burn Jamestown to the ground yeah the important thing is he just destroyed a landmark of uh, Virginian history oh, I also wanted to quick mention uh, addendum to the previous episode of Sotweed Factor that there's the uh, references to Orinoco are indeed intentional Afroban references. Um, and uh, I don't know if we mentioned already, but there's a uh, the second edition of the Sawweed Factor that comes in the Maryland Muse after this omits the Quakers. So those are the other two notes on the Sawweed Factor I had. Um, um, I think that'll uh, just about do it. Our next episode, I think, will be Afroban uh, Widow Ranter, mm -hmm. uh, which I have not gotten to yet, I'm uh, ashamed to say. 
Um, but uh, we'll be doing that with Grace in a, in a week or so. Um, uh, and we'll have some other stuff too. Uh, it's been busy. Look, uh, Iowa <laughs> happened. The Super Bowl happened. Uh, some debates happened. A TBS live show happened. Things were happening last yeah, week. A lot so. of content being made. Too much content being made, but uh, this is about three hours of content, so hopefully <laughs> you enjoyed this. Um, yeah. uh, Alex, thank you very much for uh, coming uh, on this journey with me back to the uh, Chesapeake area. Yeah, always a pleasure. Um, and uh, until next time, uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, become a patron, folks. Uh, Patreon.com slash literary hangover. Uh, we got some a lot of new stuff coming for you this year. Uh, it should be fun. Uh, so check it out. Bye.